Hey guys, welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Bitstein, otherwise known as Michael Goldstein. Today's episode is a special one comprised of three recent podcast interviews and talks I've given. The first is an interview with Saifedean Amus and me on the Human Performance Outliers podcast hosted by Sean Baker and Zach Bitter, recorded in mid-July. We talk about Bitcoin carnivory and some interesting parallels and connections between the two. The second is my talk at the Texas Crypto Meetup here in Austin, Texas, hosted by Kelsey Kamen and Capital Factory. The talk is called Bitcoin Sound Money for the Digital Age and was recorded on July 30th. Finally, an episode of the new and great Stefan Lavera podcast recorded on August 3rd, where we rip apart Nobel laureate Paul Krugman's perpetual Bitcoin fallacies. You can find timestamps for each segment in the show notes, as well as links to the podcast, which I highly recommend subscribing to. If you've been getting value out of listening to Noted Bitcoin Podcast, you can become a patron on our brand new Patreon by visiting patreon.com noted. You can also contribute Bitcoins by visiting noted.org contribute. Enjoy the show. Hey, thank you guys for coming on. Um, you know, we, we've got a couple topics we, get, we, we should talk about. Uh, I don't know if we, you think we'll stay, stay with video the whole time, Zach, depending on how the signal and the sound up. Comes. We may have to drop video at some point if the if the sound gets compromised. But uh, so you guys are, you know, for people don't know you guys. I mean, you guys are both uh, dedicated carnivores. You've been doing it for quite a while. I can't remember the day. I know, safe. You're probably over two years now, Michael. I don't know how long you've been doing it for. Um, and then obviously there's the Bitcoin. You know, the Bitcoin thing, which many of the people listening to this are going to not know much about. So we're gonna we're we're gonna get into both of those topics. Um, you know, uh, hopefully as much as we're able to. What do you guys want to talk about first, Bitcoin or carnivory? I mean, they're really one and the same. So, I mean, I think both of us have been doing it about two and a half years. We practically started around the same week. We had both been very uh, hardcore keto advocates. And then uh, one day we were just messing each other. It was like, hey, safe. Do we really need to eat vegetables? And he was like, hey, Michael, do, do we really need to eat vegetables? And then we stopped because we didn't. <laughs> and then what happened? You guys, you immediately dropped dead, right? I mean, you got sick. You got malnourished right away without those without those vital phytonutrients that we always hear about. Is that what happened? Uh, I've been dealing with uh, scurvy and kidney problems for the past two and a half years. <laughs> but, you know, I take about three pounds of supplements every day. So that's what a lot of Are those supplements in the form of uh, red fatty things called steaks? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, you know, we got to do a lot of, uh, you know, just myth busting, you know, and, and dispel. We, we just had Professor Stuart Phillips on talking about protein and all the myths that could surround on eating protein. And, you know, it does take an order of magnitude of effort to dis, to dispel all the BS that's out there. So you got to, you know, whatever BS it's put out there, you got to spend 10 times as much energy to kind of dispute that. And so, but you guys have been doing it for two and a half years. So I guess you guys knew each other prior to that. Via, via, I guess the Bitcoin thing. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what what drove you? I mean, what were the differences that you guys when you switched over from from a ketogenic diet? And, and I don't know what you guys were on before that, but what drove you guys? I mean, what were the changes you guys noticed, good and good and bad? You know, and, and obviously you're still doing it, so there must be more good than bad, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I think I had the, um, I. The most noticeable thing was that I lost my belly. I had a little bit of a small belly left, even at uh, low carb. And I think that uh, final pulling the plug on uh, getting rid of vegetables. I wasn't eating, you know, I wasn't eating a lot of vegetables, but it was uh, 
just pulling that plug on that last little bit, I think, made a bit of a big difference. And in terms of the metabolism, the ease of digestion, that also changed. It's just uh, eating became simpler and easier, and uh, cooking time was much less. Food was much more delicious when you replace broccoli with an extra steak. It's just a no-brainer. So all around, it was just, um, I mean, there was, there was no negative trade-off involved. It was just better all along. And so I just uh, stuck with it because it, it felt much better. And I think also focus. I, I mean, the, the focus and the mentality aspect of it also um, improved a lot. The calmness, the ability to focus and concentrate, the ability to not, you know, um, if you're under pressure, if you're facing something complicated, the ability to just stay focused and uh, be able to do what you want to do, I think, is, uh, is is pretty noticeable. Were you, when you were on a ketogenic diet, were you, I mean, meticulous with your macros? Did you find that by switching to a carnivorous diet that your protein intake went up uh, a bit i was never much into counting and macros and all of that stuff so i started down this path of reducing carbohydrates about 10 years ago when somebody mentioned it to me and i thought you know let's just try at that time i was maybe 30 pounds heavier than what i am right now i was you know i was 27 but i felt like i was 50 um you know i i wasn't feeling great all the time and I was overweight. And so what I started doing was, um, you know, I just removed, first of all, soft drinks like Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I got rid of these. I got rid of bread or I reduced bread drastically initially. And that was a huge difference. So then I was just on this, um, you know, I, I never really followed a strict diet. I never measured. I never followed a meal plan. I never uh, followed any of that stuff. I was just doing my best to try and cut down on the carbohydrates. And then over time, I started reading more, experimenting more, uh, listening to different ideas. You do take a lot of detours and you do follow some uh, stupid ideas like, say, taking MCT oil in heavy doses, um, which I, I look back on right now and I think is just uh, probably was a silly thing to do. Uh, it tasted like crap and, you know, uh, you can get much better fat from a ribeye, so I don't see the reason for it. But, you know, over time, I experimented with a lot of different things and really... Um, I, I was never really strict about any of it, but I was just always getting improvements from reducing carbs until I tried going uh, zero carb. And then it was really liberating because now I don't even have to think about macros or should I be eating this or should I be eating that. I, I, this is for me the main advantage of it is that I just don't think about food at all. It's one of, so the, one of the, 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 the comments that's often made about people on a carnivorous diet, they will say, well, it's because you got rid of the sugar and the processed food. And, you know, that was the only reason that you're doing better. But clearly, you know, there's a step in between there when you've already done that and all that's left are, you know, some vegetables and maybe some low sugar fruits and some of the keto things. But by getting rid of those things in addition, you know, yeah. you're saying that you actually noted an improvement, even though you, you excluded those things, and even though you'd already gotten rid of all the processed sugary stuff out of your diet. Yeah, pretty much. I'd, uh, I wasn't eating junk. I wasn't eating... I was eating, you know, the occasional, I was eating vegetables mainly, um, pickles and uh, small amounts of fruits. Uh, that was that was all that I was eating as I was keto and low carb. And that's what I got rid of, you know, the supposedly innocuous uh, vegetables. But I think it made a big deal, big difference. Now, now that's, safety, that's, that's, that's oh, go ahead, of, go ahead, Jack. Sorry, that's the interesting thing to me is I think like uh, the carnivore approach has gained a quite a bit of momentum in the last year or so, you know, partly thanks to Dr. Baker and uh, 
Um, but so you're seeing people now kind of going from, I guess, a standard American diet to straight carnivore. And then I think that, you know, when people make that question of like, well, yeah, you just, you got rid of a whole bunch of junk and replaced it with, with, you know, beef or meat. Uh, so you saw benefits, not necessarily from the beef or the meat, uh, but more so from just the elimination of the poor things. But I think when we get guys like you and some of our other guests, like Amber O'Hearn and Michaela Peterson, uh, some of those original carnivores, you know, they didn't just jump in from a standard American diet. They, they're more like what you guys yeah. are. They, they started out probably at one point at a standard American diet and then went keto, uh, or gluten free or something like that. So they, they, they took all those steps along the way. They didn't go, you know, jump all the way to carnivore right away. And I think that's what's interesting, kind of getting that story from, from, you know, guys like you and other folks who've been doing it for, for quite a while. Like Charles Washington is another good example. We had him on the show as well. And um, to kind of more or less look at that from a different angle and not just say, yeah, we're eliminating bad things. Because when, when you're doing a healthy ketogenic approach, you know, there's a lot of vegetables in that for most people because uh, like what we've talked with uh, some of our previous guests too, a lot of times the, the move on the ketogenic diet is eliminate the starchy vegetable, but replace it with a fibrous, non-starchy vegetable. Um, and I think sometimes that can cause some problems because you're eating a lot of just undigestible matter. You're, you're putting, as Tucker Goodrich would say, essentially cardboard <laughs> into your yeah, system and you're absolutely. causing your body to have to process that. So. Yeah, um, it's interesting. To hear well, once once you hear it, once you hear vegetables described as cardboard, you can just never unsee <laughs> that. You can never unhear it. And you're always eating, and you're just thinking, "What am I doing to myself? Why do I, why do I put something indigestible in the digestive system? It just mm -hmm. does not make sense." Yeah, yeah, and you know, one yeah. thing I noticed too when I I when I started ketogenic, you know, I did that exact thing. I was eating tons of vegetables. I looked at them as this great gateway for fat, and then. When I kind of brought that back into check, what I one thing I noticed was you wouldn't get these kind of big swings in just like water weight, I guess, because uh, I'm assuming like, you know, there's going to be some binding of uh, fiber with water, which is going to cause these like more, like these bigger like weight fluctuations. When you kind of cut that out, all of a sudden, like you kind of maintain that same balance or your body's able to balance some of that a little a little better and, and, and then you just feel better, I think, because you're not constantly going through these big swings and water retention and things like that. So did, have you guys noticed anything like that too when you kind of cut down on some of the fiber, some of the vegetables? I'm trying to remember, it's been so long. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, I, for me, my story, I had been interested in paleo diets for many, many years prior. Uh, one of the things that carnivory did for me was uh, give me a way to actually stick with healthy eating. Um, because despite understanding paleo and then eventually like the, the ketogenic stuff, I was still eating a lot of junk food because it would, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have a slip day and start eating fast food and then it would just continue and I would just be a fast food junkie again. And, um, I didn't, I wasn't able to finally kick my, uh, soda habit until, until I went carnivore, uh, which is probably one of the you know best things I've ever done in my life, um, was getting rid of that, um, so I actually, uh, I almost, I was somewhat coming from the standard American diet. I just knew about the other stuff as well. 
Hey, Safe, let me, uh, I mean, you're a bit of a world traveler now with your book and stuff like that, and we'll get into that stuff, but I mean, you're based out of Lebanon. Do you find that uh, living in Lebanon is either positive or negative with regard to carnivory? You know, what's the attitude in that country towards this type of diet? Is vegetarianism, veganism widely popular in Lebanon? What's a, what's what's a, what's a, the, the, the milieu no, no. like there? At the risk of making all of your uh, listeners want to move to Lebanon, I'll just say Lebanon might be the best place for uh, carnivores because, well, we don't have a lot of vegans and vegetarians, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. For me, what uh, matters is that uh, even if we did, I think what really matters is Lebanon has an amazing uh, um, culture of uh, butchers who know how to process meat, in particular raw meat and organ meat. Uh, so if you... Um, if you just Google Lebanese raw meats or Lebanese organ meat, you'll see some amazingly looking dishes. Um, and it's uh, it's amazing because there, you know, you have butchers everywhere and they'll deliver. So I have no problem, you know, waking up in the morning and calling a butcher and having, uh, you know, uh, brains, liver um, or uh, ground raw meat delivered, you know, all fresh processed on uh, all, you know, prepared on order, delivered straight to your home. It's uh, it's really exceptionally good. So, for instance, uh, you may have heard of some dishes like kibbe or habra or sauda These are all raw, and they're great. And I I used to love that stuff a lot, even before I was carnivore. I used to always, I mean, raw liver has always been my favorite uh, dish. And, um, you know, when you're in Lebanon, you can get that. It's it's really clean. It's really fresh. It's really good. It's It's a great place to be a carnivore. I love it. That brings up an interesting topic because there's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, among the carnivore community, there's a lot of uh, sort of back and forth about is raw meat better, is, you know, including a bunch of organs better. What are your guys' opinion, thoughts, experience on that? You know, I personally don't include a lot of that, and I, and I, and I personally feel and perform very good. Uh, you know, I'll have some organ meat occasionally at a restaurant if it's available. You know, I'm going to go to a Brazilian all-you-can-eat place in a couple of days and I'm sure they'll have some kind of like chicken hearts or something like that. I'll probably have a few of those, but I don't make it a regular part of my diet, but uh, just wondering what your, what your guys thoughts are on that. Michael, your experience with that, because it's a bit of a controversial topic. Some people say, yes, it's mandatory to include in the diet. Other people say, no, we do fine without it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the, the hotly debated uh, topics. Even when you get down to eating only one thing, there's still going to be debate among people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, my, I, I have eaten a bit of raw meat before, and uh, it was a very positive experience, um, uh, digestive-wise. Um, but I, for a lot of these things, I, I, I don't really know the the different causal mechanisms of why some people would do some better with different things. Like, um, you know, the Andersons eat very much not raw meat. They they cook theirs to you know, medium, medium, medium well. And I think they've even experimented with raw meat and they just do better than with, uh, with that. A lot of Eskimos, uh, or Inuit, uh, rather, uh, ate a lot of raw meat. And then there's other references from Stephenson where they're cooking their meat a lot. Um, and the same thing with organs is there's some, you know, times you'll hear that a group was eating a lot of organ meats and some, oh, they were throwing it to the dogs. Um, so, uh, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of experimented. I haven't noticed huge differences yet, you know, uh, but it's the sort of thing I'm, I'm open-minded to it. And, uh, there's, there's some contingents that are very, um, aggressive about the idea that you should be eating, uh, raw and a lot of organ meats. And, uh, you know, they even, you know, like to criticize you, um, 
for for basically saying you know just just eat a damn steak, uh, which I also support. I'm willing to even believe that maybe there is something uh, to that, but at the same time, uh, I can't deny the results that people are having by just eating you know muscle meats. So uh, maybe hypothetically, if we if we had scientists who are do- doing their jobs, maybe we could explore these things. But until now. Um, they're they're busy finding the magic next <laughs> antioxidant uh, berry out there to sell it to you for seventeen dollars yeah. a pound. The, yes. These are the real nutritional questions, and no one no one's addressing them. Um, so hypothetically, yeah. maybe there's something to eating a lot of raw meat, a lot of organ meats. Um, but like I said, like uh, all of us have seen results just by eating yeah. muscle meat, and so many people have. So at the very least, we can't deny the results we're seeing there. Maybe there's something more, but. Um, I oh sorry yeah you have to go ahead? But my my only experience is I used to like organ meat for a long time I've always loved organ meat and so uh, I just honestly don't think much about it I I I eat organ meat not because I have to I eat it because I enjoy it and uh, I mean uh, you know I I don't think it's necessary because people like you show me that you know you're obviously not suffering from any deficiencies I wonder however maybe if you're coming off some terrible um, standard American diet, perhaps if you were able to eat organ meat, you might be able to adjust mm-hmm. quicker. You might be able to recover from the damage quicker. That might be the more case. deficiencies going on. Yeah, if you have a lot of deficiencies, possibly organ meat. I, I keep reading stuff about how, how rich they are in, uh, in nutrients. So I think there might be something for that. And I'd also think, you know, um, I don't think it's very uh, healthy or natural for people to be repulsed by organ meat. I think if you find organ meat repulsive, then you know maybe you've just had too much uh, cereal and uh, Coca-Cola that you know you're not used to the taste of meat. I I, I see nothing wrong with it. I love the yeah. taste of liver. Perhaps you know people who are maybe afraid of uh, organ meat. Perhaps a good uh, gateway drug to organs might be the tongue. The tongue is uh, slightly similar to muscle meat. It is a bit of a muscle, and it's it's not very easy to cook. But I think it's uh, it's delicious and it's. Uh, Cooking with it is very good. Another thing that I really like and I highly recommend is bone broth. I think it's enormously beneficial. I, bone I marrow as well. Yeah, and bone marrow as well. These things, I mean, I, I, I can I can feel getting stronger just by with every sip when I sit, when I drink it. But as I was saying, you know, earlier, it's just I don't think much about food anymore. And this is for me the the, the most uh, liberating and beautiful thing about yeah. this diet, which is, you know, if I feel like having some liver, I'll have it. If I don't, I'll have a steak. If I feel like cooking my steak, I'll cook it. If not, when I'm eating lamb, I generally prefer it more well done. When I'm eating beef, I prefer it more rare. Um, when I'm in the when I'm in the States or Canada, I'll, um, I can go weeks or months without having organ meat and not even uh, notice it. Um, so I just, I mean, in, in the long run, I think, you know, all of these roads, all of these paths lead to the same sort of destination, which is if you've gone a year, I think with, uh, with a lot of meat and zero carb or very close to zero carb, you're going to be all right, whatever you do. That's what yeah. I think. I would also say like, you know, barring, barring, you know, a specific medical case where uh, perhaps organ meats, uh, are really beneficial. I know, uh, the paleo medicina group in Hungary they strongly suggest eating uh, quite a bit of organ meat, so about a about a pound of liver a week, and um, also brains if you can have access to it. It's very easy to access to that in the United States, and at this point, I just want to try it just because they don't want me to eat it. Apparently, it's really good. It's really really good. <laughs> but um, I, I think there's this issue with you know meat uh, has been so vilified um, for so long 
that people almost do anything they can to rationalize why they shouldn't. So, for instance, in the paleo communities, you get stuff about, you know, oh, you need grass-fed meat. So unless you are getting, like, the finest cattle from New Zealand where they have an ancient shaman, like, you know, blessing it all day as it eats the grass on the perfect pasture, unless you have that, you shouldn't eat the meat. You should focus on, like, good paleo vegetables that your ancestors didn't even have access to. Um, likewise, uh, with organ meats, it does have a bit of a control element to it where it's, uh, people just don't, people underestimate how nutritious meat itself, just muscle meat is. Um, and so they think, uh, they need to control you. Oh, you need to eat the whole animal to, to get everything. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's an open question to me. I can see arguments from both sides and I, I only have, uh, limited, limited experience with the organ side. So I, I really don't know. But um, if if you're using it, if you're using organs or for instance, or like I said, like grass fed or something like that as an excuse as to why you shouldn't eat more meat, I totally disagree with that. Yeah. Once you've gotten into it, or if you have a specific illness that can be helped by uh, supplementing with liver or something else, barring that, like, uh, until you've like fully adapted that's when you can start you know experimenting with things but until then you know uh, you know don't worry about your salt intake don't worry about your organ meat intake don't get, worry about grass fed once you get once you get settled in maybe you'll start uh exploring different sources of meat maybe you'll start exploring uh different parts of the animal uh maybe you'll start exploring things like removing salt um or or maybe even more salt um but the lesson you know just eat a damn eat steak. A damn steak yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you know, it's interesting you, you referenced, uh, you know, paleomedicina. We're going to have Kasaba Toth, uh, the, the, one of the principal researchers, uh, clinicians there on the show coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited to have him God's on. Work out there. Well, well, yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm excited to talk about him. But, you know, we had Mickey Bendor, anthropologist, on a couple of weeks. I don't know if you guys caught that show. But we got into, you know, human evolutionary uh, nutritional, uh, nutritional uh, strategies and you know one of the things that was shown is you know they you know they they largely you know ate a lot of elephants basically and because they were the fattiest animals they were going after the fat and some of the behaviors that you know went around that like you know as as you know the fat sources kind of went away as we kind of killed off that megafauna then we started to seek out more of the fattier parts we started to crack the bones so we get the marrow so we can continue to get that energy supply and so i think a lot of times some of the cultural stuff around eating organ meats and stuff like that is you know cultures that had access to a limited amount of animals or you know they, they they relied on that they would probably eat as much animal as possible rather than go to the grains rather than go to some of the uh, some of the other uh, plant-based sources of nutrition so they would try to maximize they would maximize before. the animal nutrition and now we're in a situation here in the United States in particular where hey man I can go to the grocery store and buy ten ribeye steaks I don't have a I'm not in a situation uh, that that's saying I've got to eat every single you know you know eyeball and and, and brain and stuff like that and so I I don't know again I think it's an open-ended question but I think some of that has to do with situation has to do with culture and I think it has to do with you know what you're forced to do I, I do think organs are obviously they're very highly nutritious um, you know I don't think there's a downside to including them for most people I mean there's some talk about you know too much vitamin A toxicity if you if you just you know gorge continuously the liver, liver but that's that's pretty that's pretty really you know minimally a, a, real, a realistic scenario so i think that's an open-ended question let's yeah. um 
do you want to let's shift over to Bitcoin, guys, because this is, you know, this is a topic that, you know, I wish I knew more about. I, teach us about Bitcoin as if we're third graders, because, you know, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, just go through the basics, walk it through it. I mean, there's a lot of criticism being levied at, levied at it. It's it's I mean, just what is Bitcoin? Why do we need to know about it? Why is it important? I mean, you guys are some of the world's experts. Safe has got a book out there. Uh, it's, it's called Bitcoin Standard. If I'm not, is that, is that the name of the book? Yeah, the Bitcoin Very Standard. Uh I, uh, you know, I, I hope you plug your book. There it is, <laughs> the Bitcoin Standard. I know you're proud of doing that work. I know, I, I know, I saw you. What you, know, you, you put all that work through. Your fingers were bleeding on the keyboard, typing all that stuff up there. You were powered by meat. Your your brain was working at, at maximum efficiency to get that out there. I've seen a lot of good, a good reviews on this. But I just don't understand that. I just don't have the the financial background like you guys do. So, so talk to us about Bitcoin. What's the story? Bitcoin is monetary ribeye. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I guess um, I'll just uh, the, the way that I see Bitcoin is just the software that is distributed over thousands of computers all over the world, maybe many more than, than thousands. Um, and it allows people to it, it, the software that allows us to perform the functions of money and the payment network. That's at a very simple level. That's what it does. So effectively, in my opinion, the argument that I make in the book is that it can replace the functions of a central bank. So instead of having. Uh, the central banks of the world, which are government monopolies, which um, which are, have a monopoly on the issuance of money and the monopoly on the transferring of value across the world, we're replacing that with a bunch of software that does that job. So obviously we don't have time to get into how it does that job and people can read um, a lot of things online that explain it. But essentially, you know, if it's in the same way that you know uh, it used to be that you needed an operator to make a phone call you know you had to call the operator and they would pick a wire and plug it in there had to be human uh, manual uh, operators for phones and then we figured out how to make phones so that they would be automated so that you just click the number and then it makes the call you can think of this as like that but i emphasize in my book that it's not really a replacement for your credit card or for your paypal or for your consumer payments it's really a replacement for the a central bank layer of payment settlement. And and the key thing is like this this base layer is not controlled by any one individual. So when yeah. you're using uh, the United States dollar, that's a currency that is under the full control of the Federal Reserve. They get to decide what is the supply of that currency. Um, but Bitcoin, the rules are set um, by the entire community and it's effectively impossible to change and thus no no individual can decide to just create more units out of thin air to enrich themselves at the um at the expense of others um and so uh it it, it allows for more financial sovereignty and uh you know not not being and not having your currency devalued by a an organization that wants to enrich themselves yeah, and I think the connection with, uh, with with the carnivorous dieting and low carb in general, I think, is just that um, in the same way that, you know, the U.S. government and most governments in the world have been telling people what to eat. And as you know, it's not been working out in economics. There's a very similar problem, which is that, you know, economists are the ones who handle the money instead of money being a free market institutions, which is which is what we had under the gold standard. You know, nobody. No king or president or parliament decreed that gold should be money. It emerged as money because of its properties that made it the best form of money back in the 19th century, which I discuss in depth in my book. You have that model of people freely choosing their money and, and you know, transacting with others who also accept that money and whose value is determined on the market because people accept it. 
versus the 20th century model of government telling you, no, you need to use this piece of paper and we can make as much of that piece of paper as we think is best. We decide uh, how much the interest rate is. We, you know, we have a, a committee of experts that basically decides those things. So that sounds very familiar, obviously, if you look at how nutrition works, you know. For millions of years, somehow the human race managed to survive without having, yeah, without the USDA telling us what to eat. But you know, somehow we get to the 20th century, and oh my God, you know, what are we going to eat if the USDA doesn't explain to us how many portions of this and that we need to eat? So, if you're going to question one, you're highly likely to be um, able to uh, look into the other, and so that's why you know a lot of people who get into Bitcoin are very easy to persuade about this. You just tell them, well, you know, um, it turns out just like you're thinking, just like with Bitcoin, you know, maybe what they told you about diet is wrong. Why don't you try a couple of weeks of eating steaks? Check it out, see what happens. You find that the possibility of a Bitcoiner trying that out is far higher. Also, the other way around, like a carnivore who's already come to the conclusion that, yeah, the USDA has lied to me. Well, maybe other uh, uh, government agencies aren't um, telling me the truth. So maybe this Bitcoin thing, there is something to do it. So you find this open-mindedness, this ability to question authority, this ability to not just be, uh, you know, not just go by what authority tells you, I think is, is, is the main thing that is in common between the two. Yeah, and with both of them, when people try it, they actually see results. You know, with uh, the Bitcoin network, the Bitcoin network has an uptime of 99.9999 whatever percent um, since the network started almost 10 years ago. Um, and likewise, people see, uh, you know, results with uh, carnivore diets sometimes within days, um, if even that long. Like some people, for some symptoms, it'll be the next day they'll start feeling better. Um, we're, we're, we're providing uh, new ideas that people can actually go out and try and see for themselves. They can verify that for themselves and get actual results. Um, we're not just we're not just playing around in the theoretical playground. We are trying to enact things in the real world and get a better world, not just in our minds, but like actually around us. Yeah, and I think the uh, if you don't mind me, uh, I think the other point that is really interesting, and I I had almost a whole section of my book written about this, but it it required a lot more research. Um, for it to really be uh, strong and I end, ended up removing it but maybe I'll write it as an article or maybe even a book at some point but I think there's a very strong link between the degeneration of nutrition over the last 40-50 years in the US and the degeneration of the currency and uh, you know the link is, is, is pretty straightforward there's like a smoking gun that you can see which is that in the 1970s after many uh, decades of you know slow inflation, inflation began to pick up really properly after 1971, which was when the link between the dollar and gold, the final link between the dollar and gold was removed. So after that, the prices of everything started going up. But obviously, no government in history has ever admitted that the reason the prices are rising is because of uh, the fact that they're printing money. It's always everything else in the world except for them printing money to pay bills. So of course, in the 70s, it was the US you know, the the local welfare policies plus the uh, global warfare policies the U.S. was carrying out, the enormous amount of spending that U.S. politicians were doing, that's what was driving inflation. That's what was driving the prices up. So the government's response to that was to, um, you know, uh, prevent, to blame it on speculators and international financiers, which is what they always do, and to try and find a way to keep the prices low. And so in order to do that, they came up with this thing called the CPI, which is a ridiculous um, 
measure of prices. It's completely invalid mathematically um, because it measures the average value of the things that an individual buys. But of course, that's not going to be an accurate measure of the uh, inflation because what you buy depends on the prices of things. In other words, um, you know what they, what they did effectively was that they tried to make it so that the value of the food doesn't uh, rise. But you know, if you, if if you see if you look at it, here, here's the best way of explaining it. So in 1970, if you wanted to buy a ribeye, it would have cost you probably two dollars. So then, flash forward, uh, fast forward to uh, 1990, a ribeye costs maybe twenty dollars to or ten dollars, let's say. So now, you know, if you have the same income between 1970 and 1990, you can't afford the ribeye anymore. So you're buying a burger for three dollars. So it looks like in 20 years, the price has gone up about 50 percent in 20 years, right? Which you know is not that bad. 50 percent over 20 years is maybe one or two percent per year. That's doable. For most people, that is acceptable. If you tell everybody, you know, prices are going up by 1% or 2%, but that's the price you have to pay for living in a modern society or whatever. Um, and that's the sort of the thing that they say. Most people are willing to accept it. But you see, you're not having a, bur- you're not having a ribeye for a 50% increase. You're having a burger, which is less expensive. And now you move fast forward to 2010. People aren't, you know, they're now buying their lunch for $4 or $5. But it's not even a burger. It's a soy burger. So like on the CPI index, it looks like, you know, your lunch was $2 in 1970, $3 in 1990, $4 in 2010. I'm, I'm just making these numbers up, obviously. But, you know, the point is it looks like the lunch is going up. The price of the lunch is going up at 2 3% per year. But in fact, what has happened is that your lunch, you've replaced your ribeye with a soy burger. And so if you think that, you know, it's all proteins and calories and it doesn't really matter, then it's fine. You know, inflation is low. But if you want to really understand, you know, once you start understanding nutrition, once you start understanding that a soy burger is very different from a ribeye, you can see that, yeah, the price of the ribeye today is maybe 20 bucks. It's up tenfold from what it was in 1970 or something like that. So the inflation is actually much higher. And so what has happened is that, you know, the price of food has gone up, but the quality of the nutrition that people eat has gone down. And so the way that we've hidden the inflation is just by feeding people more and more nutrition-free junk that allows them to think that, oh, you know, we're eating, you know, and the prices aren't up. But really, you know, you're just cheating yourself. You're cheating your body out of it. And the best, the best, you know, this is like the general picture of it. But if you want to see the sort of smoking gun that I mentioned earlier, I mean, uh, I think there's a story of a guy called Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture under uh, Nixon. So what Nixon did, and what Nixon did was, you know, look, prices are rising for food, and we need to find a solution for this. And so Earl Butts, he was called King Corn, because he went out and told all the U.S. farmers, you know, his, his motto was, go big or go home. We have no time for small farmers. We have no time for small land holdings producing, you know, uh, nutritious food. We need industrial agriculture. And so it was effectively using the power of industrialization, using the power of hydrocarbon fuels and modern machinery and equipment to try and bring the price of food down. And that succeeded. You know, you can make a lot more corn if you give government subsidies to uh, corn producers. They can make more corn. They can produce it in much larger quantities. But the, of course, the effect of it, as you see, is that, you know, the corn is nutrient free effectively and it's just full of calories. So effectively, it's an industrial process where you're just filling calories. Well, it's worse than nutrient free. 
yeah, it's, it's actually it's full of anti nutrients. <laughs> exactly. So you're getting all the anti nutrients. You're not getting any of the nutrients that are in that food, and you're filling it with calories. And you know, this, in my opinion, is the real driver of the obesity. It's the fact that you know, if you, as I'm sure you know, you know, once you eat a steak, that's it. You have a steak, and then you can go on with the rest of your day, and you don't need to worry about food anymore. But if you have cereal in the morning. You've just had a bunch of calories, a sugar spike, and then you crash. And then all day long, you need to keep nibbling on junk in order to keep getting that sugar high again. So I think you can't really understand the transformation and the move towards this kind of nutrient-free junk grazing day long that, that most people in America do, which is at the root of the cause of this crisis. You can't really understand that separately from the destruction of the value of the currency and the fact that you know people's real incomes are not keeping up with the inflation that is... Um, destroying the value of the food. If you think of it in terms of numbers and government statistics like the CPI, it doesn't look bad. But if you wanted to measure it in terms of the actual nutrients that people are getting, I think, yeah, it does look very bad. And so if you wanted to measure the price of, um, you know, how many nutrients you would have had in 1950 versus today, and this is something that I'd like to work on in, in more detail, I think that's where the inflation begins to show up. So, Besides, hey, Safe, oh, sorry. Hey, Safe. Let me just uh, because I know you often talk about you know calling paper money fiat, and you talk about you know when we left the gold standard because gold had inherent value. It required effort, time, and investment to actually mine the gold to to acquire the gold. And yeah. now with Bitcoin, what is the inherent value in Bitcoin? Because there's some work that's involved in in in, in mining those you know those crypto dollars or crypto you know points. And so, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? And then one of the criticisms that's being leveled currently about Bitcoin is the work that is required to to actually you know produce more Bitcoin is it's it's, it's extremely electricity intensive and so there's been some criticism that it's just, it's using too much electricity. Can you can you talk about those issues? Sure. So I mean, in terms of the inherent value, I think the the, the, the fundamental basic premise from which economics begins is the idea that all value is subjective. So nothing has inherent value. Anything that has value has value because people decide that it has value. So, you know, oil used to be something that you would pay people to take out of your land so that you could use the land. Now it's something that people will pay you for to take out of the land. So the oil has stayed the same. It doesn't have any inherent value, but just our valuation of it has, is what has changed. So the, the difference is that with gold, the value is determined on the market, that people choose to value it freely and people choose to accept it freely. And that's that's really what matters for it. And the reason for that is that because is, is because it's very hard to produce. And that's really the main argument of the first six, seven chapters of my book, which don't even get into Bitcoin at all. Hard money is always what's going to win. People will rather put their wealth and store it in things that are hard to produce, because if it's hard to produce, it's hard for others to make more of it. And so it's hard for others to take the value out of it. And so, you know, this isn't this is why you know it's beyond right and wrong it's just reality people will choose the hardest thing to produce as money and governments use um, the threat of violence governments will threaten you to throw you in jail so that you could use their money which would not be used on a free market without government forcing you to use it and pay taxes with it because it's easy to produce people given the choice in a free market they'd rather choose things that are hard to produce so bitcoin recreates that bitcoin recreates that in that it's very expensive to make bitcoin you know the cost of making a bitcoin right now is roughly in the range of buying a bitcoin and that's what you want in your monetary asset because if there was a way for somebody somewhere anywhere to make bitcoins at say 10% of the price of a bitcoin then nobody would want to use bitcoin as money okay 
So in terms of the electricity consumption, uh, the, the the point that I make, you know, is, is it's it's this idea that you know electricity consumption is bad. I think is a very very wrong misconception that the environmentalist movement has has, has foisted it upon people. Um, you know, you live in a home that costs a lot of energy and consumes a lot of energy every day. You don't live in a tent. So why don't you do that? The tent would consume much less energy. Why don't you just move into a tent? Your car consumes much more energy than a horse, and yet you still drive a car. So obviously, you know, consuming energy is not a bad thing. It's obviously a costly thing. You have to pay for it. But, you know, your goal in life is to live a better life, and that is going to be improved by having more energy consumed. So the process of human civilization and the growth of our civilization is in us being able to command more energy. You in and you look all over the world today, you know, the quality of life, the happiness, the income, the material well-being of individuals is highly correlated with the amount of energy that they consume. So places that are poor are places that don't have access to a lot of energy. And if they're going to improve their lives, they're going to need a lot more energy. And, you know, we want the world to be a better place. It's going to mean a lot more energy consumption. And that's not a bad thing. So Bitcoin is just a new technology that... Um, you know, in, in the same way that the that the car does what the horse does, but consumes more energy and saves us from having to deal with the horse and horse shit on the streets everywhere, that's what Bitcoin effectively does. It allows us to re replace central banks and replace government monopolies over money, which allow governments to do all sorts of horrific things. And that's the real cost of it. You know, it's not just that, okay, you know, it's cheaper to hire a central banker in terms of a central banker consumes less energy than Bitcoin. But a central banker also allows the government to take away your wealth, inflate your supply, finance unnecessary wars, finance all sorts of um, destructive government monopolies and things. And so if you really want to think about it, you know, by replacing human, dis human discretion over money with electric consumption, we are able to get a money that is neutral and that is much better for us because it's, it allows us to store value well and it accumulates value over time and it's, it's, it's much uh, – it's, it, it, it kills all of the thing, bad things that government do, including telling you what to eat, including the, the managing your money, your food supply, and having something like the FDA tell you what your diet should be. Yeah, had these had these banks that were holding people's gold um, been able to keep themselves from fractional reserve, uh, like using fractional reserves and inflating the money supply, and uh, so they once again could enrich themselves at the expense of others. If they could have kept themselves from doing that, we would have no reason for Bitcoin exactly. uh, because they would just be doing their job. The fact is, though, is throughout history, you can cover centuries and centuries of um, banking history. And every single time, uh, you know, bankers can't help themselves but uh, use fractional reserves. Um, it always devalues the currency over time. Um, and so because of that, we have to use this. Um, so whenever someone wants to complain about um, the electricity usage of Bitcoin, first of all, it's incentivizing, you know, new ways of finding electricity. And I, I actually have long-term optimism that uh, Bitcoin mining will uh, incentivize the development of, you know, more like nuclear technology or other, other clean, so-called clean energy kind of things. Uh, but besides that, if they would stop, if they would stop cheating the system, we wouldn't need this. So the people who, who are, sending their vitriol towards Bitcoin for uh, uh, burning electricity, they need to redirect that vitriol to the people who cause us to have to do this in the first place.
So just just because a lot of people are are maybe not familiar with some of this stuff, and and, and I'll include myself in one. When you talk about fractional reserve, you're talking about the fact that a bank will say they have you know twenty million dollars in a bank, and they only have two million dollars actually on hand. And when Safe's point about Bitcoin, the, the cost of making a Bitcoin is what it is is what it's worth, rather than say if I have a hundred dollar bill in my hand, it only may it may have cost the government three cents to produce that, but now they're saying it's worth worth a hundred dollars. So that's yeah. the difference when we went away from you know something that was Although, actually back backed by yeah. gold. Yeah. Although in today's world, since, you know, since the 70s, when we've had no link between gold and the dollar, it doesn't even cost anything. It's just, you know, it, it costs as much as it costs to, to pay someone to, you know, type something into an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. That's only, how you create new money. Only about 10% of the actual dollar supply is physical dollars. And about 90% is all digital. So we were already all <laughs> on digital money anyways. Just Bitcoin just makes it expensive digital money. That's the... That that's the astonishing achievement that Bitcoin managed to do, and that and that inflation is, I guess, directly tied to that ten percent like regulation. Essentially, is what you're saying, where the central banks are required to keep ten percent of what they claim to have on on hand. Um, so, just to kind of, I'm gonna, I just want to rewind a second here and uh, <laughs> um, see if you like. You can definitely tell me if I'm way off base here, but uh, kind of like I listened to a podcast a while back about about Bitcoin and um the the kind of short answer was essentially what it's doing is it's kind of removing that middleman which is the central bank um and kind of creating a direct relationship between the supply and the demand which is going to essentially create like a much more accurate price per product uh or you know a more accurate um evaluation of that product uh from the demand itself uh is that kind of essentially what you're trying to say with it and then if so what kind of pushback are you getting from like these uh very powerful central bank figures when they're kind of essentially getting removed from that equation or kind of uh being pushed out or are they trying to reinvent themselves to fit in that equation at all or i i guess you're correct in that sense that you know when you when the money is a free market money it allows everybody to make proper calculations about the value and the opportunity cost of things. Mm-hmm. When the money is easy to produce, it's funny money, nothing has a real opportunity cost. And so you get effectively all of the problems of the modern economy that people think are just a normal part of a, an economy, inflation, recessions, business cycles, unemployment. These are not a normal part of how an economy functions. In fact, the point of money is to coordinate economic activity to stop these things from happening. And so when you mess with the money, that's when those things happen. And the metaphor that I like to use is messing with the money supply is a little bit like uh, if, you know, the government was every day announcing what is the inch and what is the meter and what is the centimeter. So, if you know, if imagine if every day they redefine the inch, you know, good luck trying to build your home when every day the, ch- the size of the inch changes. Obviously, you're going to build homes that will be falling apart. There will be many problems with it. So that's that. That's the one way of looking at it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the punditry class they hate it. Like er, everyone, yeah. everyone in the the media, in government, in um, the banking industry, they all they all have looked down upon Bitcoin and been uh, <laughs> uh, on a whole spectrum of angry and and rude about um, yeah about it. Uh, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner called Bitcoiners cultists um, years after he had uh, written an article called Bitcoin is evil. Um, He then quoted me on Twitter um, and said that he was understating things uh, because I said uh, Bitcoin is a revolt against uh, fiat money and an all meat diet is a revolt against fiat food. Um, This did not please the intelligentsia class. 
But uh, yeah, th these people cannot stand it. Um, that being said, you know, I think I think uh, many people in governments will uh, come to appreciate Bitcoin for a, a variety of reasons, uh, whether to uh, save ship because, you know, the, the central banks, they, they create a very fragile situation for um, global economics. And uh, that can be dangerous uh, if you're trying to, you know, conserve power. Um, and such. Yeah. So they might they might capitulate to Bitcoin. Um, in fact, I I can think of many reasons why they might actually do so. Um, but the bankers themselves, they're they're not pleased. They try to promote memes like uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin. The the underlying the, the ledger that Bitcoin use, uses is something called blockchain. Uh, but that that data structure is only useful for the purposes of digital cash. However, they try to take that buzzword and apply it to how they're trying to make these really inefficient, uninteresting um, so-called improvements to their own systems um, while totally missing the point of what Bitcoin actually provides. Which um, is to it, get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> and to be clear, like uh, I, I actually, you know, based on the, this idea of the Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin doesn't get rid of the banks. It, it merely gets rid of the fractional reserve banks. So sure. people who, there can still be, uh, for instance, like, loans in a Bitcoin world. There can still be custodians in the Bitcoin world. There can be a whole slew of financial institutions, um, but they're not going to be able to just make up units in the, the monetary supply. Um, so anyway, yeah, like we've seen everything. There's uh, very few of them seem to actually understand the technicals. Um, I think Paul Krugman, he has a very honest response to Bitcoin because it is, an, is a total affront to his entire worldview. Um, it'd be like going to the, you know, American Diabetes Association and tell them to eat only meat. Um, it's exactly the same reaction. I mean, you see it on Twitter, you know, this kind of uh, reaction that you get from the uh, government-sponsored uh, food groups and the vegan uh, propagandists and, uh, you know, they, you know the, the same idiotic sarcasm that people today think is just a substitute for any... While making it sound stupid, then suddenly you're smart and you win the argument. This is an entire generation of people who have grown up watching stupid comedy TV and thinking this is just what an argument is. And it's the same thing you get from economists and you get it from dietitians. And it's the same exact reaction because, you know, you have an official story and then you have people rebelling against it and doing well because they're rebelling mm -hmm. against it and it offends them. And, and my favorite example of this is an economist called Nouriel Rubini. You might want to check him out. And and he's he's I mean he's going he's going insane at this point because of Bitcoin he's completely lost it. This is somebody who was you know celebrating. Somebody found a tweet from 2011 or 12 where he was celebrating 12 2012 where he was celebrating Bitcoin dropping to sixty dollars and saying, see, Bitcoin has died because it has dropped to sixty dollars. And he's been watching Bitcoin go from sixty dollars to twenty thousand dollars, and now when it drops down to six thousand, so one hundred times where he said it was dead. <laughs> He's still tweeting, celebrating. See? See, I told you Bitcoin is dead. I mean, if you and, and I made the math for it once. If every time he tweeted about Bitcoin, you'd put in a hundred dollars into Bitcoin, you would have made an enormous amount of returns over the uh, over what he's done. He but, has man boobs, by the and way. And he has man boobs. Yes, <laughs> and it's, look, it's really quite revealing because you look at his Twitter followers, uh, his following, the people he follows. He follows uh, what's his name. Um, one of those vegan guys you're always fighting with on Twitter, the the, the uh, or... I, the, the the don't die, how to not oh, die oh, guy, Michael Greger. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he follows Michael Greger and he follows the, that stuff. So, and you can see it. You know, he's uh, Rubini is like 59 right now, 
um, or in his 50s, and he's already beginning to look like a you know menopausal old lady, <laughs> and you can obviously see why. You know, it's, it's the same kind of mentality that drives him towards shitty government I'm... economics and shitty government dietary advice. And you know, the the the, the reality is for me, I, I don't argue with those people anymore. I think time is the only thing that settles argument, and I will not waste my time arguing. Let him keep eating his soy and keeping his government-sponsored job, and 20 years from now, we'll see who's going to do yeah. better. Besides the organ meat uh, and raw meat debates. The other big debate is which group of people is worse, economists or nutritionists. <laughs> it's a very one. I, I, I float between, but I actually, I tend to think that economists are worst uh, because they, they mess with this fundamental layer of uh, human coordination, which yeah. uh, has that. But at the same time, uh, the other way around, uh, messing with food uh, is going to affect your ability to have any sound thinking about economics in the first place. Yeah, another way of thinking of it, I mean, to make the counter argument, uh, Michael, to argue <laughs> against, you know, if we didn't have nutritionists um, basically giving people all of this brain damage from malnutrition, I don't think these economists' ideas would be popular in the first place. So it's really hard to tell which came first, you know, the nutritionist chicken or the economist's <laughs> egg. But the good news is, you know, with Bitcoin carnivory, we're going to be getting rid of the chicken and the egg, so we'll be fine anyway. So one quick follow-up question, too, with it, like, if if we would, uh, if, like, the population, I guess, would, would just jump on Bitcoin and we would go wholesale on that, um, would that, essentially, the way I'm kind of looking at this, it, like, it's a modern-day gold standard in that, you mm -hmm. know, we're kind of revaluing things to an appropriate level. What would that do to just, like, the general person's, like, wealth savings? Would they have to take an initial hit before kind of having everything restabilized is where prices start to begin to match people's, uh, I guess, newly defined uh, revenue stream or newly defined savings or like, uh, like financial income, I guess. So, I mean, you know, most people, their wealth is not held in the form of uh, US dollars. You know, if you ask any person, very few people actually hold significant amounts of phys uh, physical US dollars or even dollars in bank accounts. So, you know, if, if we if we were to have a situation where everybody moves to Bitcoin tomorrow, yeah, you would expect the value of the dollar to collapse. But, you know, your house is still going to be your house. Your company is still going to be a company. And it's going to have this market price. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's just going to be expressed in Bitcoin instead of being expressed in dollars. So, you know, I, I tend to think, you know, the, the, the scenarios about it, about, about the Bitcoin takeover being just an apocalyptic hellhole, I think they're, they're completely off the mark. The yeah. way that I see it is that it's just... One person at a time, we're going to be moving towards this superior form of money, and any person who moves there immediately benefits. So the last people to move will benefit the least, possibly, but they will still benefit because we're going to be moving towards an economy where things are calculated with hard money. You have a hard form of money, and so value is created only, um, you know, money is only created when value is created. And I think this is really the key point. In an economy in which money is easy, a lot of people dedicate their time towards making more money. And so pretty much anybody connected to government is working a job that is not really valuable in terms of offering valuable things to people on the market. It's only valuable because it allows you access to the government printers, which you know, you're not making value. You're just taking away some of the value that others are making. Bitcoin makes that impossible. Nobody has a Bitcoin printer. Nobody can make print Bitcoin. Um, at will, Bitcoin supplies only increased according to a fixed schedule. And so I think the effect that it's going to have on society is going to be astonishing to people at just how much more productive, prosperous and peaceful society will be 
when everybody just has to work and serve others in order to make money rather than do all the stupid things that we do today. Yeah, an important uh, economic topic that Safe covers a lot in his book is uh, the concept of time preference, which yeah. is you know how, how much are you willing to delay gratitude so you can get more stuff, mm-hmm. um, like uh, achieve more of your, your ends uh, by waiting. And when you have a hard money, uh, you're, and you're incentivized to save more, your your time preference goes down. So you also um, you're able to build you know more more capital stock and just you know be be wealthier in general. And the average person, you know, how much how much time does the average person you know maybe spend having to worry about financial planning with like 401ks and like all this other stuff just to keep afloat? Because if they if they took their paychecks and got it in cash and put it on their mattress. Uh, their money would be devalued and they, they wouldn't even be able to get anything. Meanwhile, if you have a hard money, if they put just, you know, some money in, away in savings into um, Bitcoin and they hold it, presumably given, given our beliefs about the, the nature of, of money are correct um, in, in terms of, you know, Bitcoin winning, um, in the future that Bitcoin would be worth more. And so it's actually useful to just have it under the mattress. Um, and once you do that, you're you're beginning to think more long term uh, as opposed to short term, where you're just trying to to get through yeah. things, spend as much as possible. Because if you don't spend it, you're going to be worse off tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, save more because if you save more, you're going to be better off tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if you, if you look at the 19th century, you know savings rates across the Western world were more like 20, 30, even up to almost 40 percent. People saved about 30 percent of their income. Today, people save about three percent of their income if and, any if any yeah and, and and the and the reason for that is that you know there's no point in saving the money the money is going to be losing value so you might as well spend it and so you know the 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 process of civilization is people continuing to save accumulate capital and passing it on to the next generation and you have civilization when each generation is able to pass on to the next generation more than in what it received from the previous one now you see fiat money the fact that it's always devaluing means that people can't save much, and so people just spend their life in debt, and by the time they die, they have very little to pass on to their next generation. So I think, you know, it would it, it would exact, it would basically reboot the entire operating structure economically. And I, I, I think, you know, um, the world in the 19th century was a much better place in, uh, in terms of the kind of economic system that we had, which incentivized people to save, incentivized people to think of the long term. It led to a lot of economic um, growth and innovation. And, you know, if you think about the art, the way that people work, even, you know, it's reflected in the art. People had a low time preference in that they, they worked for years on producing an, econo- an artistic masterpiece. Today, nobody has the time or ability to, you know, waste a few years on trying to learn a skill. Uh, in order to become artistic. And I think that's inseparable from how the money shapes society's uh, time preference. But even before you get to that macro scale, um, we can see, so in the the Bitcoin community itself, what you tend to notice, everyone has a sort of story where they get into Bitcoin and they start putting some money into Bitcoin and they start thinking in terms of like, okay, if Bitcoin takes over, this little amount of money that I spent now is going to be worth a lot in the future. And so every time they go to the store to buy something, they have to think it's like, yeah, I'm only spending a dollar on, you know, this, you know, soda or something, but that dollar could be worth, you know, uh, a thousand times that or something mm-hmm. um, in the future. And therefore they're going to think twice about purchasing that. So you actually see a real, uh, real results 
in the real world with people's behaviors, when they start working with what they know is a hard money, they start reevaluating what they truly value and what they truly want in life. And they stop, you know, buying so much consumer items. They start thinking about what are the things I can build? What are the things I can like, what can I save towards? What can I, what can I do with my life? Um, and not just sit around and, um, yeah, you know, consume crappy food and crappy as much potato. You know, you get your paycheck, and it's just about a contest of being able to figure out how to just get rid of it and replace it with anything. You know, even things that you don't need, because it's not going to be worth anything, or it's going to be worth less and less over time. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was going to be worth a little bit more, even you know, it doesn't have to go up much, but even if it goes up by say three percent per year. You're going to be far more careful about spending, and you're not going to be spending things on things just because you want to spend. You're going to be spending only because you need to. So now, just imagine how different the world would look if people only spent money on things that they needed, and then used the rest of the money to save it, to invest it in the future, to build things that last for the future. You know, I think one obvious result of this is that people would just, you know, stop eating so much goddamn garbage and Twinkies and Coke and. All of that stuff that uh, people tend to eat, which you don't need, you know, just well, and your your body is capital, yeah. Um, and so you, because you have a longer term vision of the future, you're going to want to take care of your capital a lot more instead of yeah. knowing that there's there's going to be free health services thanks to like you know subsidized insurance programs and whatever socialized healthcare, whatever other socialized healthcare. You're going to be taking more personal responsibility and actively wanting yeah. uh, to take care of your body uh, among everything else. This this is another reason for the overlap between the Bitcoiners and the carnivores. You know, it becomes much easier to explain to somebody something about, you know, look, food is not just something about entertaining yourself today. Okay, stop thinking about, you know, this pack of Pringles makes me happy today while I'm watching a movie. You know, just think about eating today is going to determine your health tomorrow, one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And once you think of it that way, you know, it's a no brainer to start eating proper meat rather than wasting your time and money on junk. Is it it really worth it to eat that donut for that that little bit of pleasure now when you know what it can what can it affect, uh, you know, 10 years down the line? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey guys, let me. Uh, sorry, and I, I lost internet connection, so I missed a little bit of this stuff. And so, but you know, what? Why Bitcoin? You know, because there's a lot of competitors out there now. You know, Ethereum, Zcash, all these other quote unquote altcoins. And I know, Safe, you've been very vocal about discrediting those. Why Bitcoin and not some of these other cryptocurrencies? Well, the the, the technical term we use is shitcoin. <laughs> the technical. <laughs> the reason is is that in a a free market for money competition, which um, prior to Bitcoin, we did not live in a free market for money competition because we have um, legal tender laws and uh, monopolies on money production. But Bitcoin broke through that. And now, obviously, like anyone can just create their own um, currency out of thin air because we have this technology to do so. That being said, and when, once you have that free market of currency where you can't just force someone to use a specific money, the universe tends towards one money. And the reason is you can think of... Uh, you know, think of think of money like a language for economic trade. If everyone's speaking a different language, it becomes much harder for people people to communicate with one another. But if everyone is talking in the same language, um, that becomes easier to share ideas with more people. So when everyone is sharing the same economic language, there's more opportunities for everyone for different types of trade they can engage in. And suddenly different people who weren't able to trade before then can. And so there's an extreme, it, it, it's an exponential 
um, growth. When when a money uh, there's something called Metcalf's law, which is a good you know kind of heuristic, which is saying that the value of a network is roughly n squared the number of nodes in it because that's the number of um, potential um, communication lines uh, between each node. Um, that, that it's only a, a heuristic, but it's a good way of thinking of it. So every time someone goes to a currency versus another one, you can think of it as that that new currency doubled in value and the one they just left uh, decreased by half. And every single marginal movement towards one of them has that exponential growth and you're going to have a power law distribution. So, you know, there's I, I imagine there's always going to be, you know, competitors out there to Bitcoin, but it doesn't change the fact that in monetary competition, uh, one will tend to rule them all. In yeah. history, we see this with gold. You know, we've had there's a gazillion metals and other goods, you know, from from beads to, to you know, cows to salt to whatever that you can use as money. But by the 18th century, uh, 19th century, when we're talking about sort of the, what we would almost call like the, the height of civilization, gold had won out. The yeah. world was operating on a, on a gold standard and able to um, do all economic trade on that, much, makes it much easier for global trade um, in an especially connected world like ours today. The more global the money, uh, you know, the better it is for this trade. Um, so it's, it, it's just a it's a winner take all thing. So if a if a currency wants to be able to compete with Bitcoin, first of all, they're going to have to compete on the monetary policy, which is that hardness of the money, which Bitcoin already has effectively the perfect monetary policy. So I don't see how you would compete on that. And once you get from there, you would have to somehow have you you would have to have features that somehow make it a 10x, 100x, 1000x, whatever it takes to actually get people to move. Um, to that instead of just Bitcoin. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bitcoin has had the longest one. It's been the most battle tested. Um, it just continues to do the best things. It has the most mind share. It has the best developers who you know treat this like the you know civilizational project it is. It's not it's not a JavaScript you know weekend hacking project. They treat Bitcoin like this is you know rocket science. That this is you know NASA trying to get to the moon. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll also say I mean. The, the, there's that aspect of just the, the the universe will tend towards one money for the simple reason that you know if given the choice between 100 monies you know you arrive at the world and there are 100 monies the majority of people will go with the one that's bigger and that's just the process that's going to lead to it so you know the reason gold ended up being money at the end of the 19th century is not because any government chose it or there was a democratic vote about it it was economic reality and it forced itself on everybody and countries that were late to recognize that that continued to try to use silver as money paid a very very heavy price places like india and china because they stuck with silver after everybody else had dumped silver and the value of silver collapsed and that is a big problem for them, but I think there's an even, uh, you know, specifically when it comes to uh, the, the altcoins that try and pretend to compete with Bitcoin, there's a very simple fundamental reason why I think they can't even be considered competition for Bitcoin, which is that Bitcoin was, you know, invented by somebody who, you know, he made the code and he disappeared, and every single Bitcoin was produced through the process of what is called proof of work. So you have to spend electricity to make Bitcoin, and the cost of making a Bitcoin has always been roughly around the market value of a Bitcoin. That's just how the process works. So, you know, if, if the value of Bitcoin today is $6,000, it costs around $6,000 to make it. If it jumps to $60,000 next month, it'll cost around $60,000 to make a Bitcoin. So we've always had Bitcoin as hard money. 
In order to make Bitcoin, you always have to make it as hard money. The problem that all the shitcoins have is that they are not hard money. They were made by a couple of nerds for on a weekend. You know, they sat down together, they produced something, and they control it. That's the really key thing. There's somebody in charge of every single currency out there. And I mean, it's trivial to find out who that person is. If you've heard about any one of those currencies, and there's thousands of them at this point, but if you've heard of one, it is only because somebody is promoting it, you know? And that was not the case with Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the first. Bitcoin was the one that invented this thing. Bitcoin was invented by somebody who made this and he disappeared because he wanted it to succeed. So now anybody who wants it to succeed or anybody who's just interested in the technology, you know, we've already invented the wheel. So all the good engineers are working on applications of the wheel. If you're a good engineer and you see that the wheel was invented, you're not going to go and try and say, well, hang on a second, let's try and make a square wheel and then I'll be the guy who invented the better, bigger, best wheel. No, you go and you take the wheel and you build on it. And so you look at all these altcoins. Any re the only reason any of them exist is because a bunch of people decided that they wanted to do this thing so that they could try and get rich off of it. So there's a foundation behind it. There's a marketing team behind it. There's a PR team behind it. And you could, you know, if you've heard of one, I it, it would take me three minutes to look up the list of names of people that are behind it. So the point is, we sit, we you know the reason I wrote this book about Bitcoin, the reason I think Bitcoin is interesting and it offers that is not because there's anybody behind it that I trust. It's because there's nobody behind it, and because we know, and after we've we solved it, yeah, there's nobody we need to trust. And we saw this in 2017. Um, you know, we can you can see a detailed discussion of the events I referred to. We saw how some of the most influential people in Bitcoin, the most high-profile people in Bitcoin, and most of the companies that deal with Bitcoin, that have the majority of customers dealing with Bitcoin, they tried to, ch to change one tiny little metric with Bitcoin and they failed. And that's what guarantees you that the supply of Bitcoin and the quantity of Bitcoin can't be changed. That's why Bitcoin is hard money. In other words, Bitcoin is hard money because if you're going to make more Bitcoin, you have no alternative but to spend roughly the same amount of money that, comes out of, that a Bitcoin costs. With every single other altcoin, it's not hard money because the people behind it can tomorrow decide to double the supply, triple the supply. Mm -hmm. And we saw it with yeah. second the biggest, supposedly, what is viewed as the biggest competitor to Bitcoin. It was trivial for the people behind it. And as an Ethereum foundation, it was trivial for them to basically roll back the chain, reverse transactions, change everything. So effectively, it's a centralized database that people control and you know there's nothing wrong with centralization i'm not one of those people who thinks decentralization is just you know like motherhood and apple pie it's just well apple pie is bad <laughs> but like motherhood and ribeye i should say unequivocally good it's not that we value decentralization for its own sake it's that we value decentralization because we don't want anybody to mess with the money supply right. no altcoin can come close to claiming that we are hard money that this is our supply and this is how we do it Ethereum doesn't even know what their supply is going to be. They need to sit together and figure out how much more Ethereum they're going to be creating over the next year. So the, the, there's no comparison. All the other coins, there's a person behind them, there's a foundation behind them. And those people, it's trivial for them to change the code, to change what the thing does. That's why I really don't think there's any competition. You know, I think Bitcoin will fail or succeed. Bitcoin's competition is the dollar, the euro, it's gold, it's the IMF SDRs. It's national currencies. 
But these other things, these shit coins, essentially are completely pointless. They're just stupid games with stupid prizes. Altcoins alt are the keto gurus trying to sell you uh, sugar-laden snack bars. <laughs> and Bitcoin is the carnivore yeah. doc telling you to eat ribeyes. Eat a ribeye and deadlift. And, and try it for yourself. Yeah, hey, try I it mean, for yourself and, and stop stop overcomplicating things. I, I, I certainly, you know, like I said, I, I'm in this nutrition space and there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of, lot of, lot of noise out there. And I, and I certainly appreciate, you know, the because I don't understand much about economics and all this stuff. And so I'm looking at this stuff going, man, it's, you know, it's making your head spin. And so you can see where the confusion comes back. You know, when, when I use that analogy with nutrition, because there's so many people out there have been told the different message, and you guys are, you know, flying in the face of, I guess, what they'd be Keynesian economics, and you you, got, you guys are kind of changing the way things are being thought about. One of the things I've seen recently, you know, I've seen that, like, Venezuela, you know, the country's going with this tremendous political turmoil. A lot of those people are, are kind of maybe switching to Bitcoin to kind of kind – of, to kind of protect themselves, I see that China has been threatening to 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 make it illegal or something. Can you guys comment about some of that stuff on the international scene? Well, I mean, every every jurisdiction is going to approach this in a different way. Um, although it does, there, there's anyone who tries to to fight Bitcoin, I'm going to imagine is going to have a hard time in the future, and those who embrace it are going to have a good time in the future. Uh, Venezuela specifically, they had a government who, you know, took these, you know, money, money printing powers to the extreme um, to where they completely destroyed their nation's economy by giving them no good way to coordinate because the money was completely worthless. Um, China, they're they're playing. I, I don't I don't keep up with Chinese politics, but they have some kind of, you know, internal and, you know, uh, geopolitical aspirations that make them want to do a specific thing. Um but yeah, I mean, in, in Venezuela, people, um, there are a number of people who are using Bitcoin because, you know, even if they can't necessarily uh, take the Bitcoins and go immediately buy, um, go buy food or something like that, if they can hold on to it, uh, that's going to stay with them for as long as they're holding on to it as opposed to um, not having anything at all. Um, there's uh, great stories from, there's a Bitcoiner named uh, Wences Casares. Uh, who grew up in uh, Argentina and the stories of uh, living under a regime that hyperinflated the money away, you don't know if you're going to eat, you know, um, and you also like you, you get it's like it's like what we were saying about the, the fiat money and not wanting to save. It's the same thing, but to the extreme, like by the end of the day, the money won't be worth anything. Like if you if you could buy, you know, eggs in the morning, there's not even a guarantee that in the evening you'll be able to buy eggs. Um, and so for these people, you know, whatever the cost is for them to get their hands on some bitcoins, um, if it can help them in some way save some money, even if there's other trade offs with regard to what exactly they can trade for, that is a major boon for them. Um, and yeah. I, I wish all of those people the, the best of luck because they are dealing with, um, you know, uh, the, the horrors of socialism that just haven't ended. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's 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 interesting when you hear these uh, government employees like Paul Krugman and Nouriel Rubini going on about how Bitcoin is evil. They somehow don't really mention how how people in Venezuela are able to survive because of Bitcoin, which obviously, you know, since they're socialists and closet socialists, they don't see much wrong with what is happening in uh, Venezuela. But a lot of people in Venezuela can survive today because they have family and friends in the U.S. or uh, in other countries that will send them tiny amounts of Bitcoin, which they can then use to buy uh, food supplies 
from online providers and have them shipped to Venezuela, and that's how they survive. Mm -hmm. It's only because they are able to send their bitcoins. They also abroad. they also mine because there's there was a lot, I don't know if that's actually been cracked down on yet, but for a while there were definitely people mining because of uh, Venezuela's subsidized electricity. They were basically hacking the system and making use of that. So they were getting free bitcoins if they could get their hands on uh, hardware and they might not be getting as much as the guy who has you know a massive warehouse full of uh, asic chips but if they're like i said even if they're just getting something that money is going to be worth something and i should note that you know despite the price of bitcoin having gone up to 17,000 um and now down to 6,000 or whatever um that is nothing compared to the devaluation of their currency on a daily basis. Yeah. And therefore, it doesn't even matter. Like, that's still a better money. Um, yeah. And the reality is, you know, when it comes to China, there's a lot of people who keep thinking and keep trying to say that China has banned Bitcoin. It's not really true. There's, they're trying to place restrictions on exchanges that sell and buy Bitcoin. They're placing restrictions on miners. It's a complicated political uh, deal. It's not very easy for us uh, non-Chinese people to understand because we don't understand how Chinese society and government work. But, you know, Bitcoin is still in use in China. There's nothing illegal about holding it. And I think, um, you know, no country has made Bitcoin purely illegal and no country has really persecuted people for Bitcoin yet. We may see that, but I think the, the, the in the long run, it's just the governments are going to realize that they stand to benefit much more from trying to hold Bitcoin yeah. than to try to ban it. I Even on an individual level, um, if, if you're a government employee and you're tasked with deciding if you need to you know, ban Bitcoin or not, and then you do your thorough research and find out that if this thing does catch on, then uh, it's going to go up in price, you might come back and you know, be like, eh, I don't know. I think let's let's take longer to figure this out, guys. And meanwhile, you're just buying up bitcoins for yourself. Yeah, we've um, seen this happen with many uh, supposed government regulators who you know started off talking smack about bitcoin and then ended up now just basically now you get the companies on bitcoin. Yeah, and, and now you get the bitcoin. the head of the CFTC being at a hearing and say, talking about, oh well, my my uh, niece buys bitcoin, and I don't I don't want to. I don't want to take away these uh, children's future. They're they're working on these cool technological innovations. We need to yeah. I mean, sort of also on, on on one hand, the idea of banning it is just completely impractical in any meaningful sense because anybody who has a computer that can connect to the internet is able to use Bitcoin, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So you know, the notion that government is going to shut down the internet is, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that if you watch a lot of science fiction movies and um, you know you think that that's how reality works, then yeah, I mean, you might think of it. But the reality is, you know, if you try to bring down the Internet around the world, I mean, the, the damage that you would do to critical infrastructure everywhere, you'd have dams collapsing and you'd have hospitals blowing up and you'd have factories. Yeah. Uh, turning Big, into Bitcoin rubble. will be the least of your problems yeah. at that and, point. <laughs> and, you know, Bitcoin needs the least data. It's, it, it's just a tiny little amount of data that needs to be transmitted between a few thousand computers all over the world. So you could end up, you know, destroying the last 200 years of civilization and Bitcoin will still continue to operate. So I, I, the notion that it's going to be closed down or shut down, I think, is, is, is extremely off the mark. What I think in my book, you know, I discuss, well, can Bitcoin be killed? I have a whole chapter or a whole section of a chapter discussing this. And in my opinion, the most effective way to kill Bitcoin would be a return to the gold standard, which would remove the demand for Bitcoin. If people had the choice of gold and they had the ability to use banks that were honest in a free market and they could choose whichever bank they want the way they want it, that would seriously undermine demand for Bitcoin. 
But all these fantastic stories about, you know, they're going to throw people in jail for running software on their computer. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dystopic thing that would be even outlandish for even the most outlandish of Hollywood movies. Yeah, I mean, and, and then, of course, they're beating their soy in that dystopian future as well. But, hey, guys, um, I unfortunately, I've got a, I've got an interview with the New York Post i got to do here in a few minutes. So I'll have to cut out of here. But let me ask you just two things. Michael, MeatHeels.com. I know you and I got together on that. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then the most important question I have, guys, is when are we going to have this Bitcoin uh, meat supply <laughs> place that we've been talking about yeah. for a while? Well, yes. we got so, yeah. to get the meat to the people and use Bitcoin to, to buy it. That's what I want to see. Well, so uh, meanheels.com, you know, on you bought the domain name. I set up the WordPress, and yeah, we uh, we take submissions from people. Just we we want to hear people's stories about how they lives of health and fitness um, by eating meat. And we have I I don't know the exact number, but we might be up to like 90 stories now of just people who have you know changed their lives in innumerable ways. Some people just you know lost a lot of weight, and that was what they wanted in life. There's people who um, were infertile um, from, you know, polycystic ovarian uh, syndrome and other stuff like that, uh, who now have children. Um, there are people who overcame um, terrible, terrible autoimmune conditions that, you know, weren't thought to be curable, uh, Crohn's disease, like you name it. There's just all kinds of crazy stuff to the point where you really have to wonder, is meat actually the panacea? Um so it's just uh, it's it's incredible to hear people's stories, um, and it's a good way for people to really uh, make it real. You know, looking at PubMed articles, um, they're usually not even good science. And besides that, it doesn't really tell that story that resonates with people and kind of encourages them to want to actually try it themselves. But these stories um, have really uh, opened people's eyes and made people want to try these things and, and get out there and do actual science for themselves. Um, I also have a website, justmeat.co, where I try to organize a lot of uh, the great resources out there on the web uh, so people can learn about everything under, under the sun, whether it's the evolution or anthropology or, you know, these testimonials or different carnivore communities like some of yours, like World Carnivore Tribe and others. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of work to be done on that, but it's just it's such a, a web of slightly unintuitive information that you have to just kind of, you know, be uh, mining around. And uh, this is my way of just kind of throwing it all in one place so people can find stuff. As far as the conference, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, the, well, I guess there is the thing. We also need to have a, a yes. beef, Bitcoin, and barbell conference. Yeah, we just had we just had a meetup. Uh, we were invited to a conference in Dallas two days ago, and uh, – uh, Michael and Pierre decided to have a dinner for the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. We ended up with like 80 people flying in, and it was 80 people who are completely on board with Bitcoin and carnivory. It was at a steakhouse, a glorious Texas in the steakhouse. It was delicious. <laughs> so I think we have a, we, we, we're underestimating. We were underestimating just how many people are in, on board for yeah. this. We've got to we've got to have ourselves a conference where you know the next time it's all about Bitcoin and yeah. barbells and beef with grilling tutorials and. Uh, <laughs> That's lifting tutorials by Sean and all of that, where we can all, you know, exchange all of that knowledge and create a, a new class of things in life. Yeah, a new class of people that are, you know, completely up to date <laughs> on the state of the art in deadlifting, bitcoining, and uh, eating beef. Yeah, I think, and then, I think some yeah. people are calling that 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 cohort of people woke. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Hashtag woke. Hey guys, I gotta we'll run. Unfortunately, set. hey Zach, will you? Because uh, I gotta get with this reporter. Hey, will you, Zach? Will you just touch on how to find? 
these guys talk about safe's book how if people are interested in pursuing bitcoin can you guys talk about how to get into that stuff uh but and I'm going to drop off, guys, because I got to go. But I, I appreciate it, Zach. I'll talk to you later. Man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah, you care. guys can maybe start. Yeah, like, one, what, what, what would someone do if they listen to this and decide I'm all in on Bitcoin? What's their, what's the easiest way for them to get involved? And then obviously, uh, you know, share any ways that we can find you guys on social media, internet, yeah. and then book info as well would be great. Well, um, so if someone gets into Bitcoin, there's a couple of resources I'll recommend. First of all, the Bitcoin standard, the decentralized alternative to central banking by Saifuddin Amus, uh, is an absolute must read um, because it doesn't just tell you, uh, you know, how this thing works. It tells you why it matters in the first place. Um, and I, I, I know plenty of people who have been listening to me rant about how great Bitcoin is for years, but it wasn't until I got them to read this book that it really opened their eyes. Um, so there's that one. If someone really wants to dive into the the technical stuff, there's a book called Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. That'll tell you all about the how. It's a uh, it's put out by a O'Reilly publisher, which makes like coding books. But you don't have to be a programmer. It it, it walks your hand. If you're an intelligent layman, um, you can definitely uh, come to grasp it. It's going to take a long time to understand. This is a whole new world of you know, cryptography and that, but any any intelligent person who puts in the work can understand all of um, how this how, how, this whole thing, like how it works and why it matters. Um, I also recommend my own website, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, nakamotoinstitute.org, where there's uh, tons of historical stuff, uh, you know, like the history of the, the crypto anarchists and cypherpunks that Bitcoin came out of, all of Satoshi's writings, um, a lot of economic analysis of Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, th those are probably the the best things you can do to um, yeah. get your get yourself started. Yeah, and I and I'll just add one small thing, which is you know the, the I really do not recommend just getting into Bitcoin by buying a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, it took me about three four years of reading and trying to figure out what Bitcoin is before I put in one cent into it, and I don't regret it. Even though you know if I'd uh, bought earlier, it would have been much better. But because it's it, it's not a simple uh, thing to, to to understand what it means to own Bitcoin, how to own it, how to keep it secure. So I really urge you know if you're interested in it, you need to learn about it first Absolutely. before uh, getting into it. And yeah, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute website is a great resource. Also, uh, the one of uh, a great Bitcoiner in the space, Jameson Lop, has a page on yeah. his on his website. It's it's lop.net/bitcoin.html. So that's l-o-p-p.net/bitcoin.html. Um, and it's just an incredible resource. It has everything that I just mentioned and more. Yeah. Um, Another website that I like is called startusingbitcoin.com. It's a useful uh, beginner's mm -hmm. intro for somebody who's not very technically uh, um, versed. It could give you a good uh, introduction uh, to those things. Yeah. Also, Twitter. If you're yes. interested in Bitcoin, get on Twitter and just find all the carnivores and yeah, then so follow, you, the, follow the smell of the ribeyes and you'll see all the Bitcoiners. And uh... you, you can start with us. Um, I'm on Twitter as Bitstein, B-I-T-S-T-E-I-N. And uh, Saifeddin, S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. And from there, you'll find everyone because we, we promote and chill yes. meat and Bitcoin all day, every day. Yes. <laughs> You just listened to my interview with Saifedean Amus on the Human Performance Outliers podcast hosted by Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. 
Up next is my talk, Bitcoin Sound Money for the Digital Age, given on July 30th at the Texas Crypto Meetup hosted by Kelsey Kamen and Capital Factory here in Austin, Texas. Slides are available in the show notes. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, Unchained Capital, for hosting this great event. Um, so I hope I'm not speaking too much to the choir with this talk on sound money, but it, I consider it the fundamental um, issue in Bitcoin and therefore a perennial and evergreen uh, talk to give. Um, so my talk is uh, Bitcoin sound money for the digital age. So I want to start at the very beginning, which is like, wh what is money and why do we have it? What is its purpose? Um, basically at, its, at, at, at the beginning, um, if you are trying to acquire goods um, in the world so you can make use of them, uh, you need to find someone to trade it with, uh, trade for it um, with, unless you can make it yourself. Um, but unfortunately, when you're trading with people, there's something called the double coincidence of wants, which is, you know, if I have eggs and you have a bicycle um, and I want a bicycle, I have to hope you, you want eggs um, in order to get the bicycle. And if you don't, then I'm out of luck. Um, and there's actually, it's a triple, triple coincidence uh, because there's also the time issue. Uh, you might actually want eggs, but not right now. And so how am I going to uh, get that bike from you? Um, so what people start to do is acquire a different good um, that they can have simply for the purposes of indirectly exchanging for something later. So, um, you know, I might find out that you actually want apples and I can find someone who uh, is selling apples for eggs and I can get those, not because I want the apples, but simply because um, you do. And as more people start to engage in this kind of behavior, um, goods start to emerge that are actually really good for that specific purpose of acquiring just for indirect exchange. This is uh, what we call medium of exchange. Um, and as liquidity and saleability, basically like how many people want to buy it, uh, how easily can you get rid of it on the market for another thing, uh, as it increases, uh, it becomes what we call money. Money, we could really call like the most saleable liquid good in the economy. Um, and it's good because it lowers the transaction cost of exchange because you don't always have to find this constant network of people um, to trade with. You can always just get the one good and be able to go, you can go buy anything you want with dollars, uh, basically in the world. Um, money then is a tool for economic calculation and profit and loss and social coordination because people can start to um, look at how good their behavior on the market is based on um, whether or not they're able to acquire this, this good that they can trade for other things later. Um, and also lets them, um, you know, by engaging in more indirect exchange with more people, you have a bigger uh, ability for division of labor um, and, and uh, production so the market can make all of the wonderful things that make life worth living. Um, now, a lot of people think that money is some kind of collective fiction. You'll think, you know, because um, it's, it only has value because people believe in it. Therefore, it's a sort of like made-up social construct. And to some degree, that I mean, that is true. Like, there's no such thing as intrinsic value in the world. Uh, everything only has a value because someone wants it for something. Um, however, that doesn't mean that every good is equal at fulfilling that capability of being that uh, ultimate you know, monetary good that everyone can be using. There are certain things that you need um, in that monetary good in order to 
be able to make use of it at such a large scale. Um, and a lot of these qualities are things like scarcity, um, you know, how, how hard is it to, to find, how rivalrous um, is it, how durable it is, um, fungibility, so fungibility is, um, you know, if you want units to be equal so that if you get a, you don't, you probably don't look at the serial number on a dollar bill, you just get a dollar bill and that works. Um, if you had to worry about specifically what kind of dollar bill you got, um, uh, relative for, for the amount, obviously, um, that would be an issue for being able to trade because then you'd have to, you, you want to be able to get rid of any dollar. Um, portability, you want to be able to move things around easily. Divisibility, um, obviously, like there's a problem if you're using um, a gold coin um, and something only costs like a penny, like how you, you know, go and shave off some atoms uh, at the point of sale. It's not going to work very well. Um, and also unforgeability, so making sure that people can't just make counterfeit um, goods. Um, so um, there is a concept of something called sound money. So, and what sound money really is is something we call hard money. Hard money is a monetary good um, that is very hard to produce, very scarce, and uh, as unforgeable as possible, while easy money is something that's easy to produce, um, and at best it's only scarce by choice, and it's highly forgeable. So something like that with uh, uh, the US dollar is um, relatively scarce. Uh, it, it's, it can be difficult to counterfeit, but at the same time, um, the only reason there's a certain number of it recognized by the US government at any given time is because the US government says this is how many um, units on the market, and so they can, they as the money printers can uh, forge it um, or, or make it less scarce uh, at any point. And a problem with monetary goods, and the reason you want this hard money, uh, is the fact that everyone in a monetary network wants to be a money printer if they can. And so you need to find ways to keep them from being able to do that. Anyone, everyone wants to be Rumpelstiltskin and create gold out of thin air. Everyone wants to be, you know, Janet Yellen and hit the, the print button and have the new dollars come to them. Um, everyone, uh, everyone wants to be in that position. And if you're able to get in that position, you have an unfair advantage in the marketplace um, and it devalues the currency. Um, but if you're the one who prints it, it devalues, uh, after you've been able to make use of it, so you're 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 scamming the system basically. Um, Wait a minute, you just said you just confused the U.S. Treasury with scamming the system. Yes. Okay, I agree. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so, um, so uh, some problems. So we can like give some examples of how we can understand you know the problems of having um, an unsound money. Um, in, in Africa, glass making was something that was very uncommon, and so having glass beads was a sign of um, great wealth, because um, there's a lot of you know, so-called proof of work to be able to go and, and uh, go through the process necessary of making these beads and being able to show them off. Um, they were rather monetized uh, by um, being used for wealth transfer between generations, between tribes, etc. Um, but um, in Europe, glass making was extremely common and it basically cost nothing. Um, so something that you had happen in Africa um, during the colonial period was that Europeans, uh, especially in Venice, were producing tons of beads um, and they were able to take them to Africa and just you know, like wipe them out economically because you know they come in and they can afford to be like kings because 
on, based on their money if they were as rich as kings um, or richer. Um, and so they're sold for everything, including slaves. Um, and so what this shows us is not only do you need a money that is sound um, and, and hard to produce within your own monetary network, you really need one that's hard for everyone because you don't want that outsider. There just needs to be that one guy who can come in and ruin the entire thing. Um, and so uh, historically, gold has been the, the hard money that uh, the universe coalesced around until um, you know, various governments were able to uh, find our way away from that um, for, for both good and bad. Um, Gold has been treasured and monetized by humans uh, since antiquity. You know, you can find gold coins from the Roman era. Um, and there's a good reason for this. And it comes back to that uh, scarcity. Gold um, is a very scarce good. Um, and we, it has uh, what's called a stock-to-flow ratio that is very high. Now, stock-to-flow ratio um, is an important concept in sound money. It's basically how much of a good do you have and how much can you expect in the next time period. And so uh, with gold, you get about 1%, 1 to 2% inflation every year in terms of people going out, doing new mining ventures, um, getting gold out of the ground and coming back. Um, compared to most goods in basically the, the entire world, that is an extremely um, good stock to flow ratio, and that's why people um, coalesce around it. However, um, there's an issue with gold um, and basically any physical good, which is that as people value it more, you've created more incentive to go mine um, and to produce uh, the, the good. Um, and so certain uh, gold mining operations that may have been um, unprofitable at one point, if the price of gold goes high enough, then it suddenly does become profitable and you bring new units um, into, into the market. Um, there was a problem in, um, uh, during during uh, you know kind of the Colombian era of you know uh, Spanish coming to the New World and they got a ton of gold and when they brought it back to the market once again they come in with this thing that was supposed to be extremely hard to produce and they dump it on the market um, and it causes a big shock in the market um, so we've kind of covered the globe but at the same time like if we continue to monetize uh, gold you would still run into this problem, and in the future you could have, you know, for instance, asteroid mining, and you come across one asteroid that has a lot of gold, and you've now doubled um, the amount of gold, you know, or something like that. I, I don't know the actually the, the exact numbers, but the point is, is you could you could flood the market with a new uh, amount of gold, and this this uh, causes uh, deep disturbances in the sound money properties, uh, the, the hardness of the gold. So. Uh, that's okay because this problem was completely solved in 2009 by Bitcoin um, when Satoshi Nakamoto created the hardest money in human history. Um, so before we get to that, I'm sure everyone here kind of has a, has a grasp on Bitcoin mining, um, but I still want to go over it uh, a little bit. So Bitcoin mining is the process of creating a decentralized consensus. So it's the way um, that we can keep uh, Bitcoin a decentralized protocol so that no one individual or group can uh, change uh, anything about the system. It has to be a sort of uh, universal consent. Um, so a miner uh, gets new transactions on the network, bundles them together in what's called a block, and puts a proof of work stamp. 
on it um, to try to get it um, accepted by everyone. And a proof of work is a very objective economic uh, a signal of opportunity cost that anyone in the world can easily verify. It, it costs you know tons of money to be able to produce a Bitcoin block today, um, but it takes my computer you know a nanosecond to actually you know check that proof of work to see if it's valid, and then you know a, a little longer to to check all of the transactions within it. Um, so it's it's very easy for everyone to verify, but it's a it's a strong cost because in order to produce that proof of stamp, you're trying to basically brute force randomness um, using a hash function. Um, it's like it's, it's like asking someone to um, flip a quarter, you know, so many times heads in a row. It's a very difficult um, problem, and then it, it, it scales up to you know, uh, you know, Chinese warehouses of, of miners. Um, and this, this helps uh, create the decentralized uh, consensus also by basically forcing people to uh, have to play honest if they want to make any money off it because if people don't follow their block that they created, uh, they've completely wasted that electricity. It's very uh, costly. So anyway, when we get to the, the actual sound point. I don't get it. You don't get it? Okay. Um, it's actually a, it's a very long question. Um, we can talk about resources to learn more about the, uh, the technicals of how mining works. Um, for the purposes of now, um, just you, you should believe that nerds figured out how to create a decentralized consensus with these computers that are having to do a lot of brute force. So they're having to pour a ton of electricity in it, and it creates this consensus. Um, and later on, we can you and I can discuss uh, how it actually works. Um, so the question is, why would you you know want to be pouring all that electricity into the network in the first place? And uh, the answer is clear. It's the best incentive there is. It's just money. Um, so uh, each block comes with a block reward. Um, it's uh, you know hard coded into the network that there's a. It started with 50 bitcoins per um, block, and then halves every four years. Um, and then you also get transaction fees that uh, people choose to attach to um, their traction uh, transaction to compete for the block space. Um, so today, miners receive 12.5 uh, bitcoins per, per block. In about two years, that'll go down to 6.25, et cetera, et cetera, until zero. So this is actually the code in um, the Bitcoin Core source code, and um, <clears throat> this is this is all my computer has to run um, in order to keep the miners in check um, to make sure that they're they're producing new units the way they're supposed to be producing new units. So once again, it takes an entire you know, giant warehouse of Chinese miners of chips built for nothing more um, than Bitcoin mining, and yet all it takes is you know, a couple lines of code to say yes or no. Um, so it's, it's quite powerful. Um, so, and what does this mean? It means that we come to the most beautiful graph of all time. Uh, this is the Bitcoin inflation chart. Um, over time, and uh, this is the ideal monetary policy. You might not like it, but this is what peak money supply targeting looks like. Um, so there will never be more than 21 million coins, um, and that's just how it is. So no matter no matter how many more ASICs people throw at it, that will be the case. May I ask a question? So how do you increase blocks if you only have 21 million bitcoins? But, say that again. How do you? So you said you produce new blocks. Yeah. 
How do you do that if you only have 21? Right, so in the future, um, it's expected that uh, you know transaction fees will be able to fill that void. And I actually, I'll, I'll be going into that a little bit more in, later in the talk. Um, so uh, the reason that uh, an additional property uh, that allows for this is something called the difficulty adjustment. And I do believe uh, when they finally give Satoshi Nakamoto the Nobel Prize in Economics, it'll be because of the difficulty adjustment um, that he gets it for. Because anyone can come up with a scheme for um, having you know, a, a fixed supply. Uh, you know, I've, I've dreamed about it for years. Um, but only Satoshi Nakamoto was the person who put all the pieces together uh, to, give, to give us what it takes to actually produce that. So, um, as I said, the, uh, the, the supply halves over time, but you also have this problem of if a bunch of people show up with those ASICs and they just start doing things faster, then they can try to get all of the Bitcoins up front early um, before everyone else uh, can even you know, compete for it. So what the difficulty adjustment does is looks at the network over the past two weeks and says, did these blocks come sooner or later than the two weeks that we were expecting? If it came sooner than the two weeks, it means that the difficulty, uh, the, the requirements that we ask for in that proof of work is too low, so go ahead and raise it. If it came too slow, then go ahead and lower the difficulty. Um, and so because of this, we have a supply curve that is not only strict in terms of where it targets at 21 million, but it's also completely statistically uh, um, uh, predictable. We know you can give me a time in the future, and with statistical probability, I can tell you the exact um, amount of bitcoins that are going to be on the market. Uh, that is a good question. I don't have that answer for you. Um, I would yeah. assume it's pretty low, right? In terms of, um, sorry, it's been a while since I've taken a statistics class, so I'm trying to remember the uh, variance specifically. Deviation. Um, well, I, so I should have included a, a chart of the, uh, the hash rate, and it's gone up tremendously. So. Um, that really depends on on sort of the the price of Bitcoin, uh, you know, incentivizing those new mining ventures. Sometimes there's going to be a large rise, and so there's going to be a ton of people that pour in to try to mine Bitcoins. While sometimes there might only be a few people, and sometimes there might be, you know, there's also going to be a mix of people who turn off their machines because it's no longer profitable. Um, so that's more of uh, dependent on the market as opposed to something that's hard coded into. Um, that so it's it's sort of a more empirical question of how the network's actually operating. Um, so this once again um, is a piece of code. This is from the proof of work code in um, pow.cpp in the source code. And once again, this is a very simple uh, piece of code um, that's able to check this. And so your computer is able to uh, place very extreme. Uh, restrictions on the outside world of what it takes to create more money according to you um, and the other people you agree with on, on sort of what Bitcoin is. Um, while once again, it doesn't matter how many, how many, uh, how much production uh, inputs they try to try to make, 
you have full control over uh, uh, staking down, the, you know, putting your foot in the ground saying it's only 21 million. So um, why does this matter at all? Um, so remember, money is a tool for economic calculation and social coordination. You, you need this good to be able to say, you know, am I, am I doing something right in the market or wrong in the market? Um, you know, did I, did I increase my, the amount of money that I hold or did I decrease it? Um, and you need to be able to have this sound thing that you can coordinate with people um, on um, so that you can, you can make agreements with people uh, about you know, the, the structures of production uh, over a long period of time. Um, so the longer into the future that we can expect a monetary good um, to fit those properties that we talked about, um, and the, the more distant into the future you can begin thinking about um, the economic calculations that you make. Um, meaning you can use something as a store of value um, and you can start to think not just in terms of like, you know, in the next week I'm going to make money or lose money, in the next year or decade or more am I going to be profitable or lose money. Um, we're also going to talk about uh, sound money being a sound basis for international trade. Um, so, store of value and medium of exchange and unit of account, these are a lot of, uh, you know, terms that you see people argue about, including myself on Twitter, um, all the time saying, oh, Bitcoin's supposed to be a medium of exchange, Bitcoin's supposed to be a store of value, etc., etc., Bitcoin's not a unit of account yet. These terms um, are used as separate concepts, um, but really they're, they're describing the same thing. Um, which you can boil down to uh, as medium of exchange, but once again, people get tripped up on these things. Um, so it depends on who you're talking to, you know, what they'll actually uh, uh, agree with you on in terms of the semantics. But medium of exchange is a good acquired for indirect exchange, while medium of exchange is not meaning a method of payment. This is oftentimes when you hear people saying uh, Bitcoin is actually a medium of exchange, what they're saying is that Bitcoin is a good that you go um, to Starbucks to spend on coffee. Um, however, and, and it's, it's not a store of value, a so-called just digital gold that you're hoarding away. Um, the problem with the statement is store of value is medium of exchange. It's medium of exchange over time. So it's, it's um, you know, trading future value of money uh, for present value of money. Um, and so when you are storing it, you're putting it away to use as a medium of exchange because you expect in the future to be able to um, divest in the currency for some good. Um, but medium of exchange does not mean that you have to be investing, you're buying the good to buy something else at this moment. And that's, that's something that a lot of people trip up on. Um, unit, of, unit of account is merely, you know, what is, what is on the balance sheet? What are you denominating that profit and loss in? Um, and so a lot of people say Bitcoin is not a unit of account yet, and they actually think that's sort of the distant future. But in many ways, Bitcoin hodlers already use it as a unit of account because they think to themselves when they go to the store, um, you know, and they get they buy a coffee, they're thinking like, oh, how many Bitcoins am I not getting because I just bought this coffee? Turns out to be a very, <laughs> very high uh, future value that they're giving up. Um, so these people are already using Bitcoin as a unit of account um, in some way. Um, it will take a long time for uh, people to be sort of uh, using a unit of account together, as in things being priced in Bitcoin when you go to Starbucks. 
Um, so a little more on stored value. So um, we talked about how money is not a collective fiction. Not anything um, can be a good monetary good, but anything can be a medium of exchange. You know, you could, you could get those apples to trade with the guy. You can use baseball cards or Beanie Babies, whatever you want, whatever it takes to purchase for the purpose of purchasing something else. That is a medium of exchange. However, it's the good that can be used for that long-term economic calculation, that store of value that actually gives it its long-term value. Um, because in order to trade a good, you have to actually expect that someone will want it. So the only reason you, you in our example earlier, that you got apples was because you thought that the guy selling a bike would actually want apples in the future. So people who are using Bitcoin as a store of value now, what they're saying is they believe that in the future, everyone will want Bitcoins um, and so they're wanting to uh, invest in it now because they want to um, profit off that, you know, the, the difference of what the future value of bitcoins are in such a world versus what it is, what it is now. Um, because bitcoin is the hardest money in human history, and there's nothing that can possibly compare with it except for maybe uh, in even in, in terms of um, resources in the universe. Um, pretty much the only thing that compares to it in terms of scarcity is time itself. Um, and so because of this hardness um, and, and its ability to hold up on all these other fronts in terms of you know, durability, portability, etc., because it's able to fulfill all that, um, it has extremely good prospects for a store of value. There's extremely good reason to believe um, that given, given you understand you know, the, the security needs of Bitcoin, that you can uh, so, uh, put it, stuff it under your mattress, so to speak, um, and leave it there for a hundred years for your, you know, great grandkids to to dig out, um, and they'll have a a good that they can go spend somewhere. Um, and so there's there's very good reason to want to have Bitcoin as a a uh, good for long term economic calculation. Um, people who understand uh, this and take it very seriously, uh, we call those hodlers of last resort. So those are people who have a strong ideological bent um, with Bitcoin, such that they believe that Bitcoin is going to go there, and because Bitcoin is going to go there, they're not going to give up their Bitcoins for anything. These people with such a strong um, store of value uh, mentality, they're the people who give um, a money a monetary good, it's uh, sort of baseline value in the first place. Because you know that no matter what happens in the market, you know, in order to trade a good, it needs, we have to expect that someone's going to demand it. No matter what happens in the market, even if it you know, uh, crashes to, to a dollar for everyone else, those hodlers of last resort are still going to want it. Um, and so basically, like, I, I cannot um, imagine uh, Bitcoin ever going to zero dollars because those people exist. Um, meanwhile, a, a lot of other goods, like um, you know, I, I don't think Beanie Babies have crashed to zero, but they're obviously um, you know not not doing so well in the market. And I don't know if people who are um, you know collecting them uh, in mass uh, the way Bitcoin is. So uh, Bitcoin is clearly a better store of value than that, and I'd say than um, a lot of goods, as, other goods as well. So um, a question that comes up a lot is why a fixed supply of zero as opposed to, for instance, a slight um, inflationary um, 
monetary policy to pay for network security. So um, uh, his question earlier was about you know what happens when the block reward is zero minus the transaction fees. Um, well, we have to hope that transaction fees are high enough uh, to pay for this. Um, this is a question that we'll have to see what comes in the future. Um, but before then, there's some very good reasons why you would want it to be this now. So one is shelling points matter. So the reason that Bitcoin or any monetary good um, is good and, and valuable is because everyone has coalesced on a shelling point. They've all sort of agreed that this is um, the way it should be. So everyone who comes into Bitcoin, they have there's no doubts about it, what the Bitcoin monetary policy is. Everyone pretty much knows the meme 21 million. That being said, if you go to, um, you know, for instance, like Ethereum or something, I literally don't know what the monetary policy of Ethereum is. Now, someone, someone might know um, the secrets, and I'd, I'd like you to enlighten me. Um, but generally speaking, it's a very hard question um, to answer, even just simply, what is the monetary policy um, of Ethereum? Um, and likewise, you know, I, I don't want to just uh, rag on Ethereum. Also, the U.S. dollar um, and every other uh, fiat currency. So I don't know what the Fed is going to do tomorrow. Um, when you have that um, shelling point of, of 21 million, everyone knows, and no one's going to change their mind. The network could technically change it, but everyone comes into it with a certain expectation, and it's going to stay that way. If there is the idea that in the future, uh, you know, you can change it to whatever you want. Well, once you, once we've decided, oh, we should make it one percent. You know, I think one percent. Well, if you remember, everyone wants to be a money printer. So if they think they can be the money printer, they well, they're going to think, well, why not two percent? Why not five percent? And what you've done is opened up a political attack surface where now um, there is more to argue about, and there's more to find. Uh, ways to fragment the monetary network um, as opposed to uh, making it stronger. So um, another point is that anything with a better monetary policy, that is a harder money that's able to you know, maintain its hardness, um, is going to be strictly superior because you as an investor, um, just by economic reality, um, unless you have some specific ideological reason, you will not want to hold a money that gets devalued over, over time. You'll want to hold a money that increases in value over time. So ceteris paribus, um, a Bitcoin with 1% monetary policy cannot compete with a Bitcoin uh, with 0% um, inflation. Um, because you know uh, Einstein supposedly said how com compound interest is the greatest uh, force in the universe. That 1% over time becomes, you know, soon enough, 40% of your value has gone away. And you know, the, the Federal Reserve tells us, oh, don't worry, it's only 2% inflation or whatever. But you know, the, the, the money that you wanted to pass down to your great grandkids has gone from you know, $100 to you know, $2 or whatever it is. So um, something that does not, even, even that small amount can have profound effects in the long term um, in terms of what people want to invest in. Um, so, with Bitcoin, you know, it could be the case that in the future we find that uh, a transaction fee market simply isn't enough um, to keep the network secure. I'm, I'm willing to imagine such a scenario. I hope that doesn't come about because these are, these are not easy, uh, 
you know, conversations and problems to solve. Uh, I, I, part of this, we don't have to think like the Fed anymore and sit around and, and try to imagine we know how the economy ought to operate. Um, so the, the more we can stay away from these questions, the better. Um, so the very idea, when it has to come, it is a Faustian bargain. Uh, in Faust, Faust Part Two by Goethe, uh, the, the devil himself basically, uh, in the form of, I, I can never pronounce this correctly, but uh, Mephistopheles, um, you know, comes and, and lures, lures the, the court with the, the prospect of paper money, um, basically for the purposes of, you know, enriching themselves at the, at the expense of others. Um, this is that Faustian bargain to to give in to the the, the money printers, uh, you know, uh, imperative and their their desires. Um, when uh, we we can see many times how that has um, ruined the economy. Um, so when it comes to this, what we want to do is take the precautionary principle and as long as we can hold on to this until it's absolutely necessary. Um, to do this, because once once you open that Pandora's box, you cannot close it. Um, so once you've moved away from that zero uh, percent, you, you you've opened that Pandora's box, and now you have um, forever endless debate over what it ought to be. So uh, moving on, an important concept in economics is something called time preference. And time preference is how much you uh, prefer present goods to future goods, and everyone has a positive. Um, time preference. Everyone wants everything now rather than later. That being said, so different people have different time preferences and different future orientations. So some people are willing to delay gratification now because they know that um, if they invest um, their goods now, they can get more later. Um, so there's, a, I'm sure you've heard of the marshmallow test before where they give a kid a, a marshmallow and they say, you can eat this, but if you wait five minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. And so the kid, they wait, and they just hold tight, they get two. Um, when you have a lower time preference and a lower societal time preference, it means that you can plan more in the future, you can do more with your capital to get the most uh, future economic output. Um, this is what Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, one of my favorite economists, calls the process of civilization. Um, basically, the, the more you can look into the future and make decisions based on, on future orientation as opposed to wanting things now, um, the more you can grow your capital stock, the more you can invest in larger product, uh, projects, and the more you can you know, build wonderful things. So the problem is when you have an unsound money, you have high time preference. So if a currency can just be devalued, if the money printers can just you know hit a button and increase the you know supply by you know double it or whatever overnight. It makes it completely untenable, unreasonable to uh, hold on to the money, um, and you're going to look for every way you can to get rid of it as fast as possible. This is a picture from a grocery store in Venezuela. Um, Venezuela has been under the tyranny of a socialist regime that has decimated the country primarily through its uh, monetary policy, first and foremost. They've completely uh, um, devalued their money, and now people don't want to just, you know, well, I'll hold on and I'll, I'll get more groceries later. It's like, no, let me just get everything I can possibly get now because 
if I wait until tomorrow, this won't even be worth anything. There's, you can go look up pictures of Weimar Germany um, when you know, they were using uh, banknotes as wallpaper and they were making bricks and using it as toys for children and they were you know, burning the money just to keep warm um, because the warmth from a huge pile of money was more valuable than the money itself. I've, I've heard stories of you know, someone trying to go to a, a bank with a wheelbarrow full of cash to get what they possibly can or whatever. Someone comes, they steal the wheelbarrow before they run off, they dump all the money out because they can get away quicker without the money in it, it's not like the money's worth anything anyway. So when you're living in a society like that, it's basically impossible to have any savings. Um, to give you an idea, in Venezuela, someone did the math, when Bitcoin went from 17,000 or more or whatever down to its, its low at you know, 6,000 or whatever it was, um, if someone in Venezuela had purchased at the peak and sold at the bottom, they still would have made an impressive profit um, because their own currency had been devalued that much in such a short period of time. So people in Venezuela can obviously not think in terms of what can I do with this money tomorrow? They have to think in terms of what can I do with this money right this instant? Um, and unfortunately, that's, you, you, can't, you can't progress much when you're, you're living in such a situation. I hope, um, I hope things get better there um, and elsewhere. Um, we, we clearly, we, we have our money um, devalued at a very uh, slow pace, so we're still able to do good things. Um, of course, we ourselves can do much better as well. So, however, when you have some money, you have low time preference because the opposite's the case. You know that um, you know uh, Bitcoin is basically a deflationary currency, meaning that um, because it's a, a strict supply, if there's an increase in demand for it, um, there's economic growth, then the value of that currency goes up. So, someone has the incentive simply to hold on to the money and um, benefit from having a higher price later. So they can just, they can just stuff the money under the mattress um, for, for later. So those people can plan more for the future. Um, and they can start investing in very long-term projects. You know, cathedrals like you know, uh, El Duomo in Florence, like these things are massive undertakings. Um, and it's not something that you can just uh, plan overnight. You have to know you have the um, economic stability um, and expected economic output um, to plan these things out, and only with a, a sound money can you can you achieve such things. Question: You ever heard of Gresham's law? Yes. Because you just described it, and ninety-nine percent of economists don't even know what the hell it is. That's uh, the fucking problem. <laughs> so, My nephew went to Yale, graduated in economics. He didn't know what Gresham's law was. Yeah. So, does everyone know what Gresham's law is? Okay, so Gresham's law is is that um, uh, I guess it, it's bad money drives out good, but that's in the, in a case where a, a government places a they basically price fix two monies and say that uh, you know the the dollar the, the the word dollar means like a twentieth it's a twentieth of an ounce of gold that's what a a dollar bill is supposed to represent. And if you look at the really old ones, it basically explicitly says on it that this is what you can exchange it for. Um, obviously today, uh, a dollar is nowhere near um, that thing, but when they, when they fix those prices, you can basically kind of force people into, um, into using the, the 
less good money um, as their as their savings and medium of exchange rather than the the good one. Um, Basically, it's shitty money corrupts our good money. So before nineteen sixty five, um, quarters, dimes, whatever half dollars had ninety percent silver content. So today, a quarter that was minted in sixty four is worth a few dollars. So people people like me will hoard it. So yeah. the good money gets buried underground, black market style. Whereas the shitty money gets recirculated, you spend it because it's not going to be worth shit tomorrow. And meanwhile, pennies and nickels are worth, uh, like the, the metal within are worth less than the, the nickel and penny itself. Um, the reverse of that is something called Thier's Law, which says that good money drives out bad in a free market situation. And that's what Bitcoin is, because now uh, people can recognize that Bitcoin offers a, a better economic future for them, so they can start putting their savings in Bitcoin. So when people ask me, oh, do you spend, they actually try to say, like, I'm not a good Bitcoin maximalist because I don't, I don't spend, um, I don't, I, I don't spend Bitcoins to get my ribeyes. However, uh, I'm, I'm saving my Bitcoins and I'm getting rid of the dollars that I don't want. And so actually, uh, over time when I spend those dollars, uh, Bitcoin is taking up more of my sort of, uh, you know, economic existence. Um, and so that's the reverse, and that's actually, that'll be how, you know, Bitcoin helps take over. So um, when it comes to international trade, the other thing is, like, in order to do business with people all around the world, you need to be able to know that uh, you can actually coordinate with them. If you have, if you, if you live in a world like we do, where there's trade wars and tariffs and all these kinds of things, it makes it very uncertain if um, doing business with someone in a certain place is going to work out very well because you know something might happen tomorrow such that y'all can't trade anymore at all. Um, you know, someone someone devalues their money to try to compete with something. They throw up a, a big tariff, or whatever. Um, there's a great uh, talk. So when when they were trying to move off the, the gold standard, uh, former president of France Charles de Gaulle um, in 1965 had a fantastic. Um, little little talk about um, the need for a sound basis of international trade. At the time, he was talking about gold, but had he been around today, I'm sure he would have been um, talking about Bitcoin. If everyone in the world has converged on a single medium of exchange, then it makes it harder for a government to be able to devalue um, that currency relative to the other currency, such as to make it more uncertain for those people and more difficult for them to be able to do trade. So when you have um, a sound money um, and a sound international money, like Bitcoin is, um, you can do more trade uh, among each other. Um, and I think that is, is a very important thing going forward in our, our very globalized world. Um, so um, when it comes to competition for money, I would say that Bitcoin is an unstoppable force so Bitcoin, I mean, uh, monetary competition is extremely brutal and also nonlinear. It's a very exponential process. So the the universe sort of pushes for one money. The universe wants one money. The reason we don't have one money today, um, we used to, it was gold. Um, the reason we don't today is because governments have succeeded at um, imposing legal tender laws so that we're sort of forced in different jurisdictions to use a particular currency. However, Bitcoin obviates that because um, there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, anyone in the world can put Bitcoin into savings and that's just that. 
um, and they can try to stop it. I don't think they will try to stop it, actually. I think they'll just kind of give in. Um, but monetary networks are um, exponential. The, the more people are using it, like it, it increases the amount of, of trades possible within a people at an exponential rate. So if you have two currencies, uh, say of the same size, but then one new person or one person switch, one new person just chooses one or one person switches sides, then one of them has now sort of doubled in value while the other has, has um, gone down double. So it's a very exponential thing. And so you get a feedback loop of, of people demanding a good more as a store of value, um, the price rising, um, mining becoming more profitable, and more processing power goes into that process, which secures it more, which only makes it an even more attractive store of value, such that people just start switching sides. And this might happen at the margin. People might start and just like put a couple of dollars in, and then as they see this Bitcoin thing doesn't go away, maybe they'll put a couple hundred dollars in, and then over time the price rises and suddenly it's 99% of their net worth when they were just weren't even looking. Um, and this is how it goes. Um, but in order to compete with this, you need something that can not only, like there, there is no sort of niche currency in the sense of like, you know, uh, taking up 40%, like, you know, it's not, it's not like one currency is 60% of the market and one currency is 40%. If the free market has its way, one currency will just dominate the rest. There might be niche currencies because people hold on to various um, ideological um, positions and, you know, maybe, maybe they want to just, in, in their community, use a specific money. Um, although that's extremely risky because if it's uh, not as secure as Bitcoin, you have that same money printer problem that we described earlier where you know, their glass beads are just going to get wrecked. Um, and so if you don't give in to that, that best global money, um, you put yourself at serious economic disadvantage um, and uh, extreme risks. Um, so because of this, uh, I, I actually don't view Bitcoin as really having any competitors at all. Uh, because Bitcoin is the only currency in the world uh, with such a strict monetary policy and such a strict, you know, and, and capable um, ability of um, keeping that monetary policy intact um, and strong. Well, uh, nothing else comes close. The, the dollar is bigger, but that's for historical circumstances, um, and I, I think I think that can be overcome. So, you know, that brings us to the, the topic of altcoins. Um, now, the technical term is shitcoins. Um, it's a scientific term. But um, no altcoin is as decentralized as um, Bitcoin. And the purpose of decentralized, people, people use the word decentralized for a lot of things now. It's like, oh, you know, decentralize all the things. Uh, we need a decentralized Uber. We need to decentralize this and that. It's important to remember what the purpose of decentralization is, because decentralization is not inherently good or bad. So, you know, it's actually, some things are good to be um, centralized, because you can achieve a lot by centralizing. Amazon has been able to give us an incredible, you know, like, review system and, and reputation system for products that no one has been able to solve in a real decentralized way, and it's something that uh, maybe it'll happen in the future, it'd be great, but at the moment, I, I haven't seen a good solution um, except the centralized solution. So I'm actually happy that people have taken charge and taken that centralized solution all the way and done, and done great things with it. 
The purpose of Bitcoin decentralization is to secure that monetary policy because the less um, decentralized it is, the more that individuals can uh, choose to change that monetary policy and threaten its ability to act as a monetary good. So, and we. I just got a question for you sure. real quick. Uh, I know you're kind of like Bitcoin maximalist. A little bit. Uh, and some people may understand this question, some may not. Uh, Bitmain just released like quarterly reports mm -hmm. that they did 1.1 billion dollars in yes. revenue. Yeah. When the value of Bitcoin mined in the last quarter was only 1.3 billion dollars. Do you think Bitcoin is truly decentralized more than any other cryptocurrency versus like Bitcoin, which is ASIC resistant? Um, so while I don't view ASIC resistance as a decentralizing force, um, it can actually in the long run be quite the opposite. So when you have ASICs, um, it forces the producer to have a very strong economic signal and opportunity cost. So if someone was using GPUs to mine Bitcoins, as they used to, but using some other altcoin, if they're no longer able to um, mine, they can go back to playing video games. And so it doesn't cost them as much to take part in this process. But when you force people to produce tons of ASICs, they're having to put more skin in the game in the network, and they have a lot more to lose if things go bad. But you don't have a problem with them controlling that much of the mining? It's not, it's not ideal, um, but it's, we have to see where the market will go. But the next bullet point that I want to cover was something that, that goes into this, which no other coin has faced something like user-activated soft forks, and uh, the No2x movement. So um, raise your hand if you know what either of those are. Okay, so a couple people. So fun story. So basically, the user-activated software was basically users of the network saying, we want a feature, even if you guys, like, you guys don't want to give it. There's, there's a feature called segregated witness that removes transaction malleability, which is a, a, a problem with the way Bitcoin transactions were um, from the beginning. Segregated Witness solved it. It opened up new venues for scaling, both in terms of the actual how much can go into a block, but also what kind of innovations Bitcoin is capable of. Um, so things like Schnorr signatures, um, which is an amazing uh, improvement on on um, the way we do the, the, the digital signatures uh, in Bitcoin. That's a possibility now. And there's all these things that are, our lightning network is made possible by having segregated witness. So it's something that, um, it, was, it was a rather, uh, it was a good upgrade and most of the, the community, pretty much all the community agreed that it was a, it was a great improvement and wanted it. However, you know, uh, entities like Bitmain were pushing back against it. They wanted, that there was a so-called agreement with corporate entities saying, Okay, we'll go ahead and do this, but only if we um, double the block size limit, um, which is good for them, not necessarily good for everyone else. Um, so what the community ended up doing was something called a user-activated software, where they switched on their software. We saw the, the small pieces of code. They were able to do that, and as a community, put pressure on the miners to uh, bend the knee to them. Um, so even though you know Bitmain is such an incredibly large company, they had to start supporting segregated witness because the Bitcoin network wanted it. Likewise with No2x, um, 
after this happened, they were like, well, you guys agreed that we have to now uh, double the block size limit. But everyone was like, no, there was no agreement. That was, that was made by corporate entities, not the network itself. Um, so there was a, a huge coordinated uh, me more, uh, as well as just, you know, the, the futures markets clearly showed that no one wanted it. Um, and once again, the, the miners were not able to uh, change that despite wanting it and despite having such large warehouses of ASICs, they can't fight the code of the network. So because of that, um, you know, and there's, there's prospects of Bitcoin mining becoming more decentralized over time. Um, you know, with Dragon Mint, there's, you know, I, I know people working on new um, impressive uh, mining facilities um, here in the United States, including here in Texas. Um, it's still early in the game, um, and I, I tend to be very hopeful. Um, and so far, despite having what seems like a lot of power, Bitmain has not been able to wield control over the network. And I think that's a, that's a huge testament um, that even a company that can get so large and look like it can wield so much cannot change um, the function of Bitcoin. No other coin, I'll get to you in a second, no other coin um, out there um, has faced something like this. And so we simply don't know if they can stand up to it. I happen to believe that no other coin can stand up to it, but Bitcoin has proven itself. Um, and I think these two stories are very much looking into. Um, there's an article by Jimmy Song about the seg Segwit2x bugs um, that, that explain kind of like a, a, a post-mortem on this. And I think it's an absolutely necessary story to understand uh, to see where Bitcoin is going now. Just curious on your thoughts on this. So as you're explaining kind of right now, it's very decentralized, even large mining uh, can't gain that much control, but there's still mining to be done, yes. right? So as the mining starts to close, and as Bitcoin does become a gold standard, so to speak, and as governments do start getting, and big banks do start getting more involved in this as they see they can't stop it, what, how, how, is, how does Bitcoin hedge against them coming in and taking control of the whole network? Yeah, um, so good question. Um, so first of all, just a, a clarification, mining never ends. There will always be mining. Um, it'll be just that at a certain point, the block reward is much lower, and they'll only be getting rewarded by the fees. But as those people come in, you have to remember that Bitcoin is full of hodlers of last resort. People who have been in Bitcoin since you know, forever, a trace mayor um, is probably the, the king of the hodlers of last resort. He's the one who came up with the term. Um, he got into Bitcoin publicly um, when Bitcoin was worth five cents, um, and he is stuck with it. So if you think, you know, do the math, a couple thousand dollars at five cents, you know, the guy has a lot. So if the government, if, if government entities want to come in, in order to get it, they have to be able to actually acquire Bitcoins. Right, and that, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ask before, is there any prediction on what that percentage of hodlers is? Um... That's a good question. I, I don't have uh, good empirical data, but um, I, <laughs> there's a lot of Bitcoins in the hands of people who care a lot about Bitcoin. Um, so, there's probably only a couple million circulation. Or four, four million are lost, right? Not lost, but... Yes, that's, tr that's true. Like a, a good percentage of the network right. is likely inaccessible at all. Right. Um, so, anyway, I, I'm not concerned about that because by the time they get in, 
We're gonna we're gonna be richer than the U.S. government, believe me. But, um, they'll they'll be begging us uh, to help refinance their stuff. But what about the transaction approval? So this is where you get to where the government can own most of the transaction approving miners, and they can affect the network at that point. Uh, the the mining, you mean? Well, let's say there's twenty, less than twenty-one million out there, or even twenty million out there. If they are approving transactions at at least fifty-one percent or more of the approval nodes out there as government entities, they can affect the network. So, if they are able to acquire fifty-one percent of the mining capacity, um, then they'd be able to, um, you know, be able to censor certain things. However, every day that they're not doing that. It gets much more expensive. So I would recommend if the government is interested in a coordinated attack like that, that they go get a time machine, go back to you know say 2012 or before, and start working on it then. Because and, and get ASICs at the beginning. Because until now, uh, Bitmain would be a, a concern because the Chinese government um, could take control of that. But because um, anyone can enter the Bitcoin mining space. If anyone ever comes up, you know, as the price rises, certain opportunities that were once um, not profitable suddenly become profitable. So my question is, at what point does just building your own thorium reactor just to hook up to a Bitcoin miner, when does that become profitable? When does doing some really crazy stuff with energy innovation become profitable to tie to Bitcoin mining? And when you do that, um, it becomes it like... Anyone can just like find these things, and, and Bitcoin, you know, uh, you know, it's you know, like Jurassic Park, like Bitcoin finds a way. Like energy, the, the energy market will just like work its way out, and just uh, Bitcoin will subsume it, and that will subsume it everywhere. Um, so I, it doesn't keep me up at night. It's certainly uh, it'll be interesting what the government might come up with as far as like the actual full nodes. Um, Having a full node only matters if you're using it for economic transactions. So if hodlers of last resort are just using their own full nodes, and the government full nodes are trying to do something fishy, we won't even be paying attention. They'll be just doing things into the void. If they're mining blocks that uh, are, are not following the rules we like, we won't even hear it. And so they're just wasting their resources. So you basically take down a lightning network, because that's the whole point of lightning network is to make it transactional, right? What about the Lightning Network? It's supposed to be used to help Bitcoin as a layer on top to help with transactions. Sure. But if the government just basically said, we're not using it for transactional, we're using it for hodling. So you can't have both. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. The point is, like, the, once again, the government would have to acquire Bitcoins in order to do that. Um, but even then, like, they can't, they can't, you would have to come up with an attack vector of how they can actually stop people from making use of the Lightning Network. In that capacity, but uh, if I could uh, go ahead and finish, uh, I have like one or two slides left, and then we can get to uh, the rest of questions. So the point with all of this, Bitcoin has really proven itself, and very few others have. Many of them either don't have monetary policies at all, like things like Ethereum, or they have monetary policies like Bitcoin Cash, but we're not sure if it can actually maintain it. Um, so, for instance, with Bitcoin Cash, they have much larger blocks. Um, there's a question whether or not, when it comes to transaction fees and long-term securing the network, if blocks are very large, there's going to be a race to the bottom with transaction fees, um, and it's an open question if there would be enough reward for the miners at all. And meanwhile, 
the uh, it'll be much more expensive for hodlers to run their own full nodes to be able to exert their own rules onto the network, thus maintaining that decentralization, and thus who gets to even control anything on it if you've if you've bought into that system. So because of this, I believe that uh, Bitcoin will continue to dominate as a store of value. It is simply the the best. It has the best prospects of a store of value of literally any resource in human history. Um, and over time, it will be monetized and used on a global scale. Um, so my conclusion of this is a, a tweet of mine, which is, you know, Bitcoin will turn consumers into savers. The economy will experience a massive boon of unparalleled magnitude. Sound money is a foundational pillar of civilization, and Bitcoin restores this powerful tool uh, for social coordination. Um, and the experts don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Bitstein, B-I-T-E-S-E-I-N. Um, you can visit the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute for that, the, the good history, Satoshi's writings, um, economic analysis, etc. I co-host the Noted Bitcoin podcast with Pierre Richard. Um, you can follow that at noted.org. Um, and finally, a couple of reading suggestions. If you like anything about sound money and time preference, and especially Bitcoin, I absolutely recommend that anyone, even with the vaguest interest in blockchain technology, should read uh, The Bitcoin Standard by my friend Saifedean Hamus. Um, it's an absolute, it's a masterpiece um, and it should be required reading. Um, additional books on uh, uh, sound money, uh, The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holzman, uh, who's an Austrian economist. He, uh, it's a, a fantastic book that, after having read it, um, solidified my understanding not only of like what sound money is, is but also why, why Bitcoin. And finally, uh, Democracy, the God That Failed by Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, certainly the most interesting and my favorite political book that I've ever read, but the most important point here is that it's the, the best treatment on the concept of time preference and its um, societal implications. So um, I very highly recommend that book as well. So um, thank you so much and happy to take more questions. Yeah, good question. So um, that is one of the few times I would, I would absolutely support a hard fork um, it, because it would be existential. So SHA-256 breaks, it means that um, proof of work is broken and anyone can just you know easily do proof of work. Whoever broke it, they probably wouldn't even you know necessarily like announce that they broke SHA-256 because it would be such a big monetary incentive to you know be mining or whatever. But uh, it breaks that. And there's also stuff with the... Uh, signatures as well. Like there, there's a whole bunch of stuff in Bitcoin that breaks if that happens. Um, so if that happens, we would just have to switch to something else. Um, I don't think it would cause problems for um, coins that are uh, uh, currently in storage. Um, so I think those would be safe. In fact, those, from my understanding, are even safe from like quantum computing attacks. Um, but um, we would have to upgrade. And I think as far as hard forks go, that would shift the shelling point of what people believe Bitcoin is very easily because if they don't, the whole thing is over. And so I think everyone would easily, like as soon as there's an implementation that's been tested, um, everyone would just switch over and we'd, we'd have something new. But 
Uh, I don't think we switch over to that until there's a, a pretty good sign that we absolutely need to. What do you think the signals would be that someone had broken it? Like, how, how did the network be able to tell? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought of that before. Um, perhaps one of it would be like if suddenly the the two week mining process took like one day or less or something, there'd probably be a sign that something was going wrong. Um, something like that might be a, a, a strong signal, and I think everyone would, you know, perk their eyes up and, uh, you know, get coding. Michael, could you repeat the questions? Oh, for, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. for the, we have a live stream going. Oh, sure. So the question was... Well, I mean, just in, in general. Okay. Uh, what are your opinion on altcoins like Namecoin or Elastos that perform merged mining with Bitcoin? Like, do you think there's a place Shit for coins. those? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Namecoin like was interesting. Yeah, they're like use case specific, like something that Bitcoin might not ever implement, and but they're still kind of contributing to the hash power of Bitcoin and kind of part yeah, of the network. It's really interesting. Name Namecoin. Um, so for those who don't know, Namecoin was actually one of the first, if not the first. Um, forks of Bitcoin, like one of the first altcoins, um, and the purpose of it was to create a sort of decentralized namespace, so you could use it for a decentralized DNS system. Um, but still, the, the problem with it, the fundamental problem I see is the fact that with any of these, anything that's like so-called a blockchain requires some kind of incentive system, which is effectively going to be a currency. And because it's a currency, it's necessarily competing with Bitcoin in that way we talked about. So Namecoin simply can't compete with uh, Bitcoin as a store of value. So you know, I thank them if it has any you know uh, uh, value at all that it's helping the the Bitcoin hash rate by incentivizing more mining. Um, but I, I don't really have you know good prospect. In fact, Name I don't even know if isn't if Namecoin. I mean, I assume it's still around, but. You don't even hear about it anymore. I guess Elastos is the bigger one because Bitmain's already come out. I think GM came out and said that they're going to devote, I forgot, what percentage of their hash rate to merge mining both of them. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, so I don't know what it's specific. At some point, you kind of just filter them all out um, until there's reason not to. Um, and I, I'm not too familiar with that one. But once again, like if you can't compete with Bitcoin as a store of value, first of all, I'm, I'm not so interested. Um, just for the fact that the reason I got into Bitcoin was because of sound money. And so I, I don't really care about, you know, like supply chain management. A lot of people are like, oh, my blockchain helps with, you know, notarizing the supply chain management of, you know, oil. So I was like, cool, like, you know, let's put some TPS reports on the blockchain. That's so exciting. Um, I care about the sound money. So um, these projects on the, the, as far as they're trying to compete, as, as far as they're creating a new money and trying to compete with Bitcoin, they're reinventing a wheel and uh, paddling up Shit Creek as a shitcoin. Um, and as far as the other projects they're doing, it, it just tends to be orthogonal to Bitcoin and um, is, is not not my uh, not exactly my interest. But I mean, I, I wish you know different projects the best of luck. Um, back to the point of you know you did make a comment on Bitmain and how that could be a concern. Um, that's literally one facet of an entire global network that could be a concern. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin has undergone several attacks. Servers and have one. been hacked. I mean, you know, and the reality is the base 
The base blockchain of Bitcoin is a ledger, and it can only be built upon and modified so much. And there is absolutely no way it's secure from quantum computing. Once that becomes a thing and actually progress to where it's actually going to go, there's no way anyone can say with certainty that quantum computing technology cannot break a security code on that blockchain. Yeah, so um, the question is about uh, whether or not you know Bitcoin can protect itself from quantum computing. I Or not, not just that, also from, again, government manipulation when it does become a larger gold standard. And one simple example of Bitmain, I mean, there's hundreds of large examples you can find. Sure. Um, as far as, I mean, every, every attack, Bitcoin has withstood all of these attacks. Um, and I think as, as it grows larger, it attracts bigger and bigger attackers. And I think every stage is just, it's an anti-fragile system. Every time it just gets stronger and it prepares itself for the next one. So I, I tend to not be worried. Now, if they came in, like if, if the big guy came in now as opposed to way down the line, perhaps there's, there's different vectors of attack that um, Bitcoin would have a harder time against. That being said, as far as quantum computing goes, um, this is not my area of expertise, um, but if you go on to the Bitcoin Stack Exchange, there's been a lot of good discussion on this. Um, and from my understanding, there's a lot of uh, things we can move to um, that would be able to withstand it. So it's, it's not something that, it, it's another thing that doesn't keep me up at night. Like I said, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you, you know, it's how these different schemes work. Um, and, and the exact protections, um, but it hasn't kept me up at night. There's a good podcast at the center that actually explains how quantum won't affect Bitcoin and what they're going to do about it. So there are some experts already. Okay, so what, what podcast? So Epicenter podcast has has one on quantum, that. Yeah. Uh, in the back. Yeah. What? So this was an awesome talk. Um, Thank you. What is it about? Like, if you had to pick a slide or two to say, like, what is it deep in your mind you think will appeal to like mainstream Joe? So that's an interesting question. Um, one, I think um, people do want to be able to save money, um, and most people, most average people that I explain, you know, Bitcoin to, uh, even if just the the digital gold metaphor, even though I, I think that's a very inadequate metaphor, um, it does resonate with the average person. Um, I think it, it's not. It doesn't take an economics PhD. I don't, ha I don't have any economics background except for my own reading. It doesn't take an economics PhD to understand the problems of unsound money and see how different monetary policies have affected our own behavior and from that our own culture and society. And so I think it's something that's all, I think everything in this talk, maybe not the technical stuff, is very accessible to the average person. That being said, on the other hand, um, I don't know that they'll necessarily be the ones that make the largest moves in how Bitcoin goes. I think a lot of them um, will kind of be compelled into using Bitcoin. Um, a lot of average people, unfortunately, in this country don't actually use money as much. To, to people, a, a lot of people in this country, I mean, they barely have any savings at all. And when they get a paycheck, money is that thing that they get from work so they can take it um, to pay rent and you know, pay off loans and all this stuff. They barely get to even experience, you know, what you get to do when you save money. So um, hopefully some of them will will do what they can to, to put into savings um, now um, as they see fit, although I don't want them to, you know, always work with a financial planner to find out what, you know, is the good, 
a good uh, investment scheme for you. But um, those people, at some point, I imagine a lot of people will just you know wake up one day and they'll be living in a Bitcoin world, um, and they won't even have had to do much to live um, in a much better world. Um, but I, I think in right now and moving forward, I think the institutional investors are going to have the largest largest effects on where Bitcoin goes, and um, people who haven't saved in it yet will get to benefit from all of that. I've heard uh, recently, I don't know who said it, that, but that uh, Bitcoiners were, um, if they wanted Schnorr signatures, were kind of in for a similar fight as, as Segwit. And I was just interested in your kind of thoughts on that. Yes, yeah, so that's, a, that's an issue. So the question was, um, you know, Schnorr signatures are going to, like, there's, there's been the first bits, um, Bitcoin improvement uh, proposals referencing Schnorr signatures being implemented. And when that happens, uh, when, it, when someone finally, like, they write the code and they say, hey, do you guys want it? Does the network want to activate it? It does have to go through the same software process as um, segregated witness. The reason I don't think it's going to be a problem at all is because the Bitcoin civil war that, it, that occurred with segregated witness spawned off Bitcoin cash. And I think that most people who did not share that vision for Bitcoin went off to do their own thing. And, you know, God bless them, have fun. Um, everyone that's now in Bitcoin, I think, is, is pretty aligned. I, don't, I, I haven't really heard anyone dissent on Schnorr signatures at all. Um, uh, the only person was like a non non Bitcoiner who um, on Twitter was saying that's that's twenty year old technology that's not even cool but like everyone else is super excited about it so I don't expect that to be um, I, I I don't expect a, a, any kind of fight like that I think it's I think it's actually going to probably go pretty smoothly and it, by the way if if something like that doesn't happen um, I'm happy with that. What I want is a sound money, and if the, the, the network says, well, we want sound money, but we don't want that one feature, Schnorr Signature is not the deal breaker for me. So likewise, with Segregated Witness, had it not happened, that would have also been good. Um, I guess I qualify as one of those regular people. I like the concept when I read about it, and I put a little money at the time and now uh, it's worth a lot more. Uh, what I'm a little disappointed is uh, as a medium of exchange, you can't say that Bitcoin is being successful. I mean, it's not used, ex extremely rarely used as uh, to go buy your groceries, to go buy your, you know, whatever, or pay your bills or anything. There, there, there's no app yet that is useful compared to, um, I don't know, uh, Apple Money or whatever they call it, the Apple Wallet. Apple, Apple Pay, yeah. Right, and all of these other... Yeah, Visa, PayPal. Right, and Venmo and all of that. So when do you think this going to happen? Because don't you think that that would increase the velocity of Bitcoin money as, as a medium exchange and make it more available? Right, so um, this goes back to something that I talked about. So by the way, the, the question was, um, people don't use Bitcoin as a method of payment now, um, so does that, is that sort of a negative effect on Bitcoin, and when do we think that that will change? Um, so going back, first of all, uh, once again, medium exchange is is not the same as method of payment, and I, I I do hope that people can you know fix fix the terminology a little bit because it's it's, it's a very different concept. Um, you are correct; people don't use. 
Bitcoin as a method of payment. Quite honestly, I hardly use Bitcoin as a method of payment at all. Um, for me, Visa, Apple Pay, all these things are better in every way, and I get to get rid of my dollars and keep my Bitcoins. Um, there's also certain you know, tax problems um, that, that hold this back, and I do hope the IRS uh, fixes that. But um, right now, if, if Bitcoin has the trajectory that I think it has, and a lot of other people think it has, uh, Bitcoin is going to be worth a lot. Um, right now it's at about 8,000, but a bearish number would be like 10 million. You know, um, there's, there's really, it's, it's, I actually think that it's, it's hard to know just how much Bitcoin can be worth because humanity has never had a currency this powerful. When we talk about gold, we're talking about a strictly inferior money. So when people say, oh, we can go to X amount if it just replaces gold, well, it's better than gold, so it's going to go more than that. Oh, well, if it, if it replaces the dollar. Well, the dollar is not that great of a money. Um, it's going to be better than that. And there's also all of the problems just with uh, you know, fiat and credit expansion, all these things like totally distort the market. So when you have a market able to coalesce around a sound money, we're talking about something uh, crazy valuable. So with that in mind, it's, no one has the incentive to spend it right now, and I don't think that's the problem. I think uh, the important thing is for people to understand what is valuable about this thing, which is, like I said, the, the ability to uh, allow us to do long-term economic calculation and savings and not have a, uh, a devalued currency and, and one with fractional reserve banking and all, all these other things. Um, and so the, the, the method of payment stuff, that will come later. I, I don't know when, um, but until people no longer have that incentive to do extreme hodling, um, they're going to choose to spend whatever other money they can. Um, so when that runs out, they'll have to spend their Bitcoins. Until then, um, perhaps a Lightning app will come out that is so cool and you can literally only use Lightning to pay for it so people want to use it then. But um, the other thing, like at some someday, like we'll, maybe you'll even still use Apple Pay and Visa and PayPal. It'll just be denominated in Bitcoin instead of do dollars. But um, point now is the, the best thing you can do is to save. And um, so that's that's just what people do. So this was uh, Square is uh, authorizing and uh, transaction is Bitcoin as it is, and a couple of other one dash and uh, My other concern is: aren't you concerned that the big the big guys, the big one, the governments and the Wall Street people and the the, the major people that would get hurt by Bitcoin? Don't you think they're manipulating the Bitcoin market right now and the CBOE and the futures and all of that to crush it? Well, they did that in September of 2017 when Jamie Dimon made it go down 25% by saying it was a fraud. I mean, you see that all the time. It, you know, you can go on to you can go on a ripple in, in January and you watch some fat guy talk about XDR. You know, what's I mean, so, what's so, what's up? It, it, <laughs> like, it happens. You're not going to get away from that. You're never, I mean, since since the market began, you're never going to get away from that. So if you think that by owning an asset, you're going to get away from manipulation, you're not. So you might not want to own the asset. And the point of, of having that asset isn't the point of 
of your spend at this point. You said it yourself, you answered your own question. You've purchased it, and it's gone up quite significantly. So it's a saving. Yeah. I mean, right. per perhaps consider so perhaps consider that um, when you if right. if you were to spend your bitcoins that you yourself were the victim of that manipulation yeah. because if, if if those these guys are smart people I know there's a lot of people on Wall Street and within government that they get I, I think they would agree with a lot of this talk and if they agree with a lot of this talk they see the same trajectory and they're thinking to themselves how can I get some cheap coins and so. Since since no one can be the money printer and just make up new coins, the way you have to do it is by convincing others to give up their coins at a low price. So uh, I, I wrote an article about four years ago now called Everyone's a Scammer, and it's about this. Like Everyone in Bitcoin is a scammer trying to scam you out of your cheap coins. And yes, like some of it might be in the form of market manipulation where you try to like maybe put out some bad news that you think will bring the Bitcoin price a little down so you can get some more Bitcoins before it goes back up. Um, and everyone's kind of playing this, this real politic warfare in Bitcoin. Um, and it's something to consider. So you have to think, what is it that I'm in Bitcoin for in the first place? For me, it's the sound money. So just being able to, to spend my Bitcoins at Starbucks is not enough for me. I wanna, I wanna put the Fed out of business I want to make a global sound money, and you can try to buy a Bitcoin from me at maybe 10 million or so. Um, but until then, we're just going to hobble. Right, and just to be clear, I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin and crypto. I want to see it succeed, but my concern is putting all your eggs into one basket. There's a lot of things that Bitcoin, the blockchain, the programming, will simply never be able to do or fulfill. So why? Why, for the life of me, I can't understand why you wouldn't want to foster a whole crypto ecosystem and, and converge that to a degree. Sure. So, right? yeah. I mean, because it, there's just simple aspects where if you ever want to get away from a fiat currency, it has to actually be a currency. Right. And as you've said multiple times, Bitcoin is it, it's, it's not that. So you keep calling it a currency, but it's not a currency. Well, well it so, is a currency. We, money, we could argue about if it's a money because it's it's not necessarily the most liquid good. It's not. Um, yeah, so as far as uh, eggs in one basket, there's a couple things. One, first of all, I, I will admit the dollar is such a shit coin um, that Dogecoin is less of a shit coin than the dollar. So. It makes sense why someone would want to, for instance, invest in Dogecoin rather than the dollar because I would expect Dogecoin to appreciate much more likely than the dollar. However, the problem is that when you look at the crypto market, um, I'm not a trader. I try to, as hard as I can to not look at charts. But when you look at the crypto market, these are not goods that are uncorrelated. That is, that it's not like Ethereum goes up um, separately from everything else, or you know, uh, Ripple or Tron or any of these things. So the problem is, is when you you could so-called diversify, but when you diversify away from Bitcoin into other cryptos, you're not really diversifying because actually now the it's they're decoupling, but against those in the sense that Bitcoin is going up and a lot of them have been going down. So I just uh, because none of them offer anything superior to Bitcoin. And they're not um... from a functional standpoint. From a functional. We want other questions too. Yeah. You guys can talk later.
Well, if, if the only value of Bitcoin is its value to the fiat currency, what's the point? If you want to do away with the fiat currency, you can actually use. You see what I mean? Um, you know, I, I, so I don't totally see what you mean, but um, let's see if anyone else has any has any what questions. What if the power grid goes down? What if the power grid goes down? That's a great question. There's, there's always the the person worried about that. Um, yeah. So. Oh no! I'm not. I'm not saying you. I. Anyway. Um, so yes, like, what if the power grid goes down? That's a concern. Uh, however, my thing with that is that if the power grid goes down, money is the last thing that I'm kind of worried about. Um, so it is. If you want to diversify, get your guns, get your ammo, get ready, get your bunker. You know, that's a good way to diversify um, in in face of threats like that. Um, Gold and, and other precious metals perhaps might be also useful, but um, like I said, like a, a lot of this predicates that the, the global economy is going on, and if there is an apocalyptic situation, we have a lot of other things to worry about, and so um, it's, it's money is going to be a problem no matter what people choose uh, to even if you know cigarettes or whatever, money is going to be a problem then. What do you think on uh, privacy? Pseudonyms and there's certain software companies like Chain Analysis that can track your Bitcoin. Yeah. So, so how, how is Bitcoin addressing that? Um, so Bitcoin has a lot of things that people are working on. Um, whether it's uh, things like Schnorr signatures, which um, makes it it has ring signatures like Monero does, so that um, people can have a multi-sig, but you don't know. You know that there's a collection of signatures, but from the outside, you don't know which one um, is actually the one spending it. Um, there's there's stuff built on that that makes individual transactions less apparent um, to others. So, like if you have if you have like a very complex kind of smart contract programmed transaction that uses a lot of script. That's going to be very obvious, but they're working on you know things like uh, Mast, um, which is oh God, uh, uh, Merkle abstract syntax tree. So it's like a, it's a data structure for the 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 script that um, makes them sort of less obvious compared to one another. So there's things like that. Then there's uh, additional coin join technologies, which makes um, individual transactions. Uh, you know, it's it's harder to tell track between who owns what because it's like it's like everyone throwing you know a dollar bill into a big box and then pulling one out. You don't know whose was whose. Um, so people are working on various implementations of that that are very interesting, um, and I think that'll that'll be very good. Like fungibility goes hand in hand with privacy, and fungibility is is a very necessary thing. Something I will point out is. Um, a lot of people like to think in terms of sort of perfect systems, like unless you have the perfect zero-knowledge system, then all of it's, all of it's for nothing. Um, but with Bitcoin, I will say like there is a lot of room for good enough privacy and a lot of uh, plausible deniability that I think can get people a long way. And so I don't think it's necessarily as bad as people think it is. Um, it certainly it can be very difficult to be private, but I'm optimistic about what we can do in the future. 
Um, I mean, set the, the, the coin centers simply competing on that, like Monero and Zcash. Monero um, is more inflationary, it's also less decentralized. Zcash, there's all kinds of weird stuff around the, the original uh, you know, ceremony and um, the, the monetary policy is very hard to verify that it's actually following the monetary policy. So um, a, lot of, a lot of the competitors don't really compete on the store of value front, which sort of drives the value of everything. So overall, I still I think Bitcoin is better because it has that store of value while also offering some um, very, very interesting avenues to creating more privacy. And I, I look forward to seeing what people come up with. Does anyone else have any questions? It's about 10 minutes. 10 minutes? I'd love to know about um, what got you into the meat maximalism. What, what was that? No, oh, the meat maximalism. So, uh, yes, so the question on my, my Twitter bio is that I'm a Bitcoin and meat maximalist. Uh, the meat maximalism comes from the fact that I eat only meat, um, and I've been doing that for over two and a half years. Um, and I recommend everyone look into it. Uh, JustMeat.co is my website on that. Um, basically, plants are poison, don't touch them. <laughs> They're good for decoration and medicine, but not food. Do you drink beer? Uh, no, I don't drink. Okay, fair. Do you supplement with micronutrient supplements or something? Then? I, I supplement with steak. <laughs> uh, I also do like I, I do like I do like eating liver as well, um, and liver is, is highly nutritious all across the board. So we do liver and help that one little guy. It's catching on. Um, the Bitcoin carnivores are taking over. Uh, you will all submit. Against the Bitcoin vegans. And there actually are a surprising number of, uh, so the question is about Bitcoin vegans, there are actually a surprising number of those as well. I think that UASF and uh, the block size debate, No2x, all of these were just precursors for the ultimate Bitcoin civil war, which is the Bitcoin carnivores versus the Bitcoin vegans. Um, that being said, uh, guys out there like Matt Corallo, uh, Elizabeth Stark, uh, you're wonderful, love you, love the work you do. Um, one day you'll you'll eat properly. <laughs> I mean, is it a little bit egotistical to say Bitcoin is going to be forever the the way? I mean, in history, you get GM, you get BlackBerry, you get all these things that have been overtaken in history. Um, innovation will continue to happen, and one day there might be a better Bitcoin. Yeah. So the question is whether or not you can like it's, it's sort of he said, he said it's egotistical, but it's really like the hubris of saying like Bitcoin will be the way. Um, so uh, friends of mine like uh, Pierre Rochard, he thinks of Bitcoin as a 100% possibility. I'm more moderate. I believe it to be a 99.9% possibility. Um, I do recognize that like I do not know the future. That being said, from what I can tell. The reason Bitcoin is the juggernaut that it is has to do with that monetary policy that we were talking about in this um, prospect of becoming sound money. And uh, you have to innovate on that. 
So there's, there's going to be people who come up with like, you know, uh, ZK snark stuff, like in Zcash, like some interesting thing you could do. Um, Grin is going to be an interesting one uh, with Mimblewimble. Um, you know, very, very interesting prospects for the, uh, the, the privacy and stuff like that. But how do they compete on the monetary policy in terms of creating this, this global economic juggernaut? How do they compete on that? Um, and Bitcoin, as far as I can tell, already has the perfect monetary policy, so I don't even know what you can innovate on. And every day that Bitcoin was around, there's a thing called the Lindy effect um, that I picked up from Nassim Taleb and Antifragile. The Lindy effect is about ideas, and the longer an idea has existed, the longer you can expect it to exist. So, for instance, if I asked you, you know, um, what what um, what was on the New York Times bestseller list two years ago? I don't know. I don't know. And yet, you know, I can tell. I can ask, like, you know, name ten Shakespeare plays. You can probably name more than ten of them. Um, so it, it's existed longer. I expect Shakespeare to last even longer into the future. We still we still read things that were from thousands of years ago. At least the ones that we could, you know, still physically, you know, dig up and actually read. Um, Likewise, the longer the idea of a money exists, this is part of why gold has sustained itself even after a century of kind of being demonetized. Um, it's been a part of history since antiquity, so we sort of expect it to continue. Um, of course, it's being overtaken by something that's better, and you think that perhaps there might be something that beats Bitcoin. Point is, though, is because Bitcoin has been kicking ass so much for 10 years, I expect it to be way longer. And um, the things that people would have to compete on are just so insurmountable to me that it's just, it's unlikely to, to the point of, I just don't worry about it. Um, well, not in your lifetime, maybe. But maybe. Yeah, so, and, and the other thing too is that Bitcoin is software. So if someone came up with something that was truly better in terms of monetary policy, that would be in the interest of the investors to want to include in their own currency. And so if someone presented a hard fork, or if they figured out how to do with a soft fork for how to do that in Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself can just do that. No one, you can't, you can't upgrade the chemistry of gold. But because Bitcoin is a social consensus, it's not a collective fiction, but it is a social consensus, because you can do that, it can adopt new ideas if better ideas come out. Um, so if it happens to, I, I think that the best competitor to Bitcoin will always just be Bitcoin itself, if that makes sense. Does anyone have any more questions? I think we have probably like two minutes. One more, One more question? When's the next episode of uh, Noted coming out? Uh, soon, soon. Okay. Yeah, so the question was when does the next episode of Noted come out? Um, we are actually doing an interview tomorrow with uh, some people, so uh, that'll be out soon. I, I do recommend um, uh, checking out my podcast, and uh, I don't feel too uh, egotistical saying that because the point of the podcast, we like to let other people speak, so it's not me sharing my opinions uh, the whole time. It's You get to hear from uh, all of the, the best uh, kind of Bitcoin developers and thinkers that Pierre and I know uh, we give them the platform to just talk about the, the cool things they're working on. So whether you like Lightning Network, you can go listen to Alex Bosworth and um, uh, uh, 
Jack Mallers, if you like, um, if you like some of the weird language stuff, we had a great episode with, uh, with uh, David Harding. Um, there's, there's great episodes on a whole plethora of technical and economic topics. Um, so I, I do highly recommend that. Uh, Safety and Amos had an episode on it that's, that's very good if you want more on the specific talk, uh, topic of this talk. You just listened to my talk, Bitcoin Sound Money for the Digital Age, from the Texas Crypto Meetup. Next up is my interview on the Stefan Levera podcast from August 3rd. Hey guys, welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast. This is episode 6, and my guest today is Michael Goldstein. Hi Michael, how are you? Hey Stefan, it's great to talk to you. Great, great. All right, guys, so Michael, uh, aka Bitstein, he is... He's a very well-known guy in this space. He is the president and co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute, which I highly, highly recommend you guys go and read. And if you're new, I recommend you go and read the crash course in Bitcoin political economy. Michael is also the co-host of Noted Podcast alongside Pierre Rochard, which in my view is basically one of the best podcasts in this space. So if you haven't already heard that, definitely go and uh, subscribe to that. And he's also the curator of JustMeet.co. So yeah, we're very lucky to have Michael on. He's one of the top guys in this space. And what I was hoping to do today is actually basically critique a Paul Krugman article which came out on the 31st of July and it's called Transaction Costs and Tethers, Why I'm a Crypto Skeptic. But before we launch into the detail, Michael, maybe you want to just talk about some of your prior interaction with Paul Krugman. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, this goes back years because uh, Paul Krugman is sort of the, the, the avatar of everything that's wrong Um according to the Austrian economists. So by the way, you know, shout out for, uh, to Robert Murphy and Tom Woods for uh, setting the stage for a good Contra Krugman uh, episode uh, with all, you know, what they've done over the years. But, you know, basically this guy, he's, he's the, the establishment incarnate. Um, and, you know, I, I think his first mention of Bitcoin was, uh, let's say, was it 2014? Um, it's, it's been a while now. Check. Yeah, no, 2013. It was December 28th, 2013, uh, when Bitcoin was $717 or so. And, uh, he titled a blog post, Bitcoin is evil. Um, now that was actually one of the, probably one of the better, uh, Bitcoin skeptics articles, uh, because he was completely honest about what Bitcoin represents. Um, he wasn't trying to necessarily say that it can't work based on some like technical reason or whatever. He just understood that if Bitcoin succeeds as money, it completely obviates his entire worldview, his entire career, everything about him. And so uh, understandably to him, Bitcoin is evil. And that's exactly why Bitcoin is not evil. Um, so that's been going on. And then... Um, you know, he, he continued to go on. There was a, a another, I don't remember if it was a blog post or just a set of tweets, but he called Bitcoin a cult. Um, I put out a tweet uh, with a damning picture of the man um, that said, uh, this is what a no-coiner looks like. 
Um, not too long later, uh, Vice had interviewed me about this so-called Bitcoin carnivore phenomenon uh, because nothing is more interesting than my lunch. Um, and uh, he shared that article on his Twitter um, and shared a quote of mine. Um, the, the quote was, um, uh, Bitcoin is revolt against fiat money. And an all-meat diet is revolt against fiat food. And he said, uh, you know, when I, when I called Bitcoin a cult, I understated things. Um, so, of course, I immediately printed this out and put it on my wall. And it, it, I, I look at it every day and it gives me inspiration. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this has just been going on for years. And um, let's also remember that this was the guy who said that the, the Internet this was back in, I think, what, 95 or so. He said the, the internet was basically going to turn out about as important as the fax machine. Um, he also had the whole idea of the trillion dollar coin to solve the economy. Uh, he, oh man, uh, there was that one time he got on and was talking about if only we could fake an alien invasion, it would stimulate the economy uh, and everything would be fixed. Um, and my personal favorite, um, and unfortunately so, it, it disgusts me that someone would even have this view, but uh, post 9-11, he had a column that said that, hey, well, at least it stimulates the economy, which is about the most egregious example of the broken window fallacy I've ever seen. Um, so this guy, he, he is <laughs> he's a handful. That's right. He, it, he is an avowed inflationist. Um, so let's break down some of the comments he makes in this article. So one of the, I think the headline statement is basically, he says, it comes down to two things, transaction costs and the absence of tethering. So did you have any comments on that part, Michael? Well, I mean, this is, it makes sense from his point of view, uh, sort of. I mean, the the transaction costs. I understand where he's coming from. He's he's trying to talk about the cost of payments. So he sees that um, right now, if you want to go purchase a good from a merchant using Bitcoin, there's a lot of transaction costs. For instance, if you don't already have Bitcoins, you have to go find someone who's willing to sell you Bitcoins. You have to acquire the Bitcoins. Then you have to go to the merchant. You have to pay them uh, with Bitcoin, um, and you're going to have to wait for a block. It's going to be it's going to take 10, 10 minutes at least, and that's just to get one confirmation. If it's a higher value transaction, the um, you're, you're going to want more confirmations. Then on top of that, um, you know. Uh, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> uh, that you would have to then, you know, go on? Oh, well, and then on top of that, the 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 cost of a Bitcoin transaction has just, you know, uh, we, we've seen it go up so high. And so it's, you know, it's not like, you know, you just you just swipe the, the credit card and that's it. So he's thinking of transaction costs uh, on that. Um, and I, th this is this is fundamentally mistaken by thinking of Bitcoin as a Visa competitor. It's also mistaken because um, he, the, the the costs of uh, basically he's viewing money simply as a uh, method of payment rather than 
a, a generalized understanding of medium of exchange. So what Bitcoin is trying to replace is not Visa, not like which is effectively like a sort of layer three technology, so to speak, on top of the dollar network. Um, it's trying to replace that base money. So what you really needs to be looking at if you want to make these kinds of comparisons are what are the transaction costs regarding, um, you know, transferring on the sort of Fed wire level. Um, and in this, it's also, you know, I am, I am not in the banking in- industry. I can't tell you right now how much it costs to, you know, transfer, not just through ACH, but something way below, you know. But the transaction costs are, are, are much more qualitative in the sense that um, there's trust issues involved, which have been routinely damaged. Um, and none of these organizations um, have any shred of reputation uh, whatsoever, if they had any ever. Um, and there's also just the the fragility thing, which is like, yeah, you you might have like a low cost, but this thing might also blow up at any moment. Um, and that is that kind of uncertainty is an extremely high transaction cost. The problem is, uh, you know, that that's not something that you will necessarily see directly in the price of it. Um, so I, I think he fundamentally misunderstands sort of the, the these fragility arguments and the, the trust nature, um, which is why, as we discuss later, he, he doesn't even understand what problem Bitcoin solves. That's right. That's right. And I think he he's essentially ignoring all of the. In making the wrong comparative, he's now he's comparing apples with oranges, and he's not comparing like what would be a better comparison. For example, might be comparing the cost of a Lightning Network transaction, which can be you know one satoshi, so which is you know a tiny tiny fraction of a US cent. And not only and that, got- not only that, um, with a Lightning transaction, it's way more private than a credit card transaction. Um, so, you know, when you have to remember every time you swipe a credit card in, uh, you're giving up tons of private information. I've had, I've had a number of, uh, you know, issues with my credit card that, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, JP Morgan and, and bank of America and all these guys, they're, they're pretty good at handling this stuff by now, but you're, you're putting up major risk by even engaging in credit cards. Meanwhile, when you make a lightning transaction, you just, you know, you, you just, send the transaction and it's done. And you, you don't have to give up any bit of information except for the money um, and perhaps your, your specific address if there's a need to ship something. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, yeah, it ultimately just comes back to Krugman making the wrong comparative and then trying to hold it to a standard that's just not reasonable for the underlying settlement layer network of Bitcoin as Safetyn explains it. I think the next thing to go into is just his comment at a broad level around what he says, the absence of tethering. And I, you know, to offer some quick commentary, I think this is this is stemming from a mischaracterization of what government fiat money is. It stems from a misunderstanding of money's purpose, you know, as described by Karl Menger, which is the most saleable or the most liquid uh, good. Uh, and so it's just a flawed understanding of why we use money in the first place. Yeah, no, uh, is, is he basically trying to say, uh, when he's saying tethering, is he saying that it needs to be backed by something or that uh, there needs to be a, um, a a different use for money as well that sort of um, uh, underplays the entire value proposition? 
like when people say that um, gold is good as money because it's jewelry. Yeah, so I think he is referring to using it, like having some kind of physical, some other use for it. And I think in his case, he's th- he's thinking, oh, the US dollar is backstopped by the fact that the US dollar government will accept it for tax payments. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he's basically, of course, yeah, fiat guys are often just app coiners uh, where the where the US dollar is their shitcoin app coin for a, a, a terribly broken governance model. <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 yet another one of these scams. Um, yeah, because it, it would be it would be ironic if he meant that in the sort of it's not if it's not backed by a sort of physical good. Which, although I guess you're saying it is backed by a physical good, saying that it's um, you know the the military um, just fiat. Yeah, so I think as I read it, yeah, go on. Oh, well, it's just you know fiat is you know it's 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 fiat because it's uh, based on decree, so it's literally you know backed so so to speak by nothing. Um, so- yeah, it's the charterless, you know, state view. So he sort of puts out both of them in this article, as I can tell. So he's saying, ultimately, it's backstopped by the fact that the US government will accept dollars as a payment of tax liabilities. And then later on, he he tries to go on to talk about how gold and he says, oh, most gold just sits there. But gold does have real world uses for jewelry and filling teeth and so on, which provides, you know, in his words, a weak but real tether to the real economy. Okay. And then he says cryptocurrencies, by contrast, have no backstop, no tether. Right. Okay. So in this case, he he is meaning what what he's meaning by tethering is uh, the the second one that I was saying, which is um, that, yeah, you believe that a money needs some other good. But yes, this is this is a complete affront to the sort of Mangarian view, um, which, as you said, is just about being the most liquid saleable good and having some other use might be um, good for the purpose of bootstrapping a currency. Um, you know, there's there needs to be some original reason, uh, or, or rather, we know by virtue of something being a money that at some point someone had a reason to demand it. So, likely speaking, one of the reasons they may have demanded demanded it was uh, because they happened to think that it was it was useful for something else. Um, and then over time, as more people demanded it, it became that liquid good. But you know, just with with many things, Bitcoin. Bitcoin obviates this physicality uh, that we so long thought money had to deal with, and even many Austrians. And it, it, it's really focused on the scarcity. That's really what what we what we understand now, thanks to Bitcoin illuminating, you know, or, or helping us elucidate better ideas. It really has nothing to do with anything but the scarcity um, that can create, you know, uh, something and. Uh, uh, they create a sort of moneyness um, and uh, a, a reason to want to hold, uh, give give something liquidity and saleability, um, well, at least once it's bootstrapped into the money. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then so the next section, he says, okay, set against this history, the enthusiasm for cryptocurrency seems very odd because it goes exactly in the opposite of the long run trend. Did you want to comment on the real long run trend there, Michael? Yes. Yeah, this is this is uh, it's funny. I think this is, you know, kind of 20th century brain damage on a lot of ideas. There's, there's so much stuff in the modern world that we like to think of ourselves as enlightened humans because, you know, we 
we use money that's apparently only good because we have people with guns pointing guns at us to use it and we drink soylent and all this other stuff we think of ourselves as the the brilliant you know everyone else throughout history was stupid compared to us well it turns out like many things uh so much of what we see in the modern world you know in, in you know the 20th century and and so on um it is a historical aberration and when we look at money you know, gold has been monetized since antiquity. You know, you can find Roman coins made in gold and all throughout the world, even, um, except for in places where it was like truly not scarce. You know, I, I think there are a couple uh, places in, in um, the Western hemisphere where they just had so much gold that it would seem kind of silly to, uh, you know, monetize it for the very reason that everyone else wanted to monetize it. But in any case, you know, the the history of money seemed to seem to point towards you know a a culmination of the end of the 18th century a uh, 19th century where you know the entire world had sort of uh converged on a global gold standard um and so then you know governments did everything they could uh worked with the banks to chip away at this and create our fiat um hedge uh uh, the, the, this fiat system that we live in. Um, and I see that as total aberration. And when, when you take that out of the story, when you take this, this paper money, and, and by the way, like, you know, you, you go back a little bit of time, you know, paper money was seen as such a, uh, like an assault on, on human reason. Um, I, I love, it's, it's of course just a, you know, a television show or something. There's a clip of, uh, from an old Marco Polo show where Marco Polo comes back from China and shows them, you know, paper money uh, to the, 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 I, I believe it was the Pope and a bunch of Cardinals. And uh, one of the, one of the Cardinals gets his hands on it and is just talking about how silly, like this isn't, this isn't the good. Like you think this is a title to some good, but it's nothing. It's just a piece of paper. And then he lights it on fire and it's reduced to nothing. Um, and then I, there is a great quote. Well, I mean, going a little further, you know, like Faust part two by Goethe, you know, is the, the deal with the devil um, is literally like paper money. Like I can make you rich by giving this paper money, but you also have like made this deal with the economic devil. And then going forward, I also know there's quotes from people like Thomas Paine and other, you know, uh, American revolutionaries and such that, you know, basically wanted the death penalty for someone who, uh, advocated for paper money. Uh, so that seems like actually the completely normal human response uh, to the very notion of having a fiat currency. Um, so take out the 20th century and it, I see Bitcoin as the you know natural continuation of this progress. You know, it fits right into the story of, you know, when you see rye stones and you see beads and you see, um, and, and you know, metals and gold and all this. Um, I, I think anyone who's who's read Saifedean's uh, book, you know, ha- has has seen this history and can easily see how Bitcoin fits right into uh, that story. But um, for Krugman, the story of progress is the one in which, you know, whatever he says is correct. Um, and so when you can create a world in which his opinions matter more uh, by saying, you know, ridiculous economic statements, uh, he does prefer that and he sees that as progress. But um, the rest of us, either do think differently or probably should think differently.
Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of tight. It you know, as you were just discussing there, it reminded me of your kind of indirect exchange there with Krugman, where you know it's 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 the parallel of fiat food and fiat money. You know, it's like fiat money is like the is is the real fad diet here. You know, yeah, actually yes, the long yes, run exactly. money. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like you know how how paleo paleo food. Um, in general, not not just my you know particular crazy brand, but um, in general has been you know maligned as a fat diet when the whole notion of it is let's eat how people have you know as far as we know have always eaten, and yet you know you know in in that case you know it's more of a ten thousand year scale where they view as the aberration, uh, but but it's also talking about a you know two million. A year time span so it's 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 very much the same yeah 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 okay cool so the next section uh he says so krugman says we have high costs of doing business because transferring a bitcoin or other cryptocurrency unit requires providing a complete history of past transactions so i think here krugman doesn't really even understand how bitcoin or bitcoin clients work uh, did you want to outline a little bit about that or around maybe light clients, prune clients, and then uh, some other points? Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's a, there, there's a couple things to, to say about this and uh, even some steel manning that I want to do, um, which is, yeah, like, you know, you and I have talked in conversation that the fact that, you know, even if you don't have a full node, you still have keys and you can still produce a transaction that is perfectly valid on the chain and can find its way into the chain. Meaning that you know um, you don't you don't need the complete history in order to simply like um, produce this. That being said, to steel man it, if you actually want to know that you actually own these coins, and you actually want to know that when you make that transaction, it actually makes it into the chain that everyone has consensus on then yes, you do need a full node. Um, there's there's a problem, you know, SPV as um, Satoshi envisioned in the white paper has just um, failed to come to fruition um, for a number of reasons. Um, but that being said, like a, a lot of people are able to uh, interact with the Bitcoin network, perhaps in a slightly trusted manner um, without quite the high costs he's talking about. And even then, like really the... The high costs, like I, I've been working on a BTC pay server, like uh, setting one up and stuff. And uh, it's extremely easy. It's, it's actually really, really easy if you have just a, a little bit of technical skills. And if you don't have technical skills, they have even easier ways that you can deploy it. Um, so the costs of that are going to be, you know, th- there are some costs for the month for hosting. And because of the large amount of data, because of the blockchain, it is a little higher um, amount of uh, you know the, the hosting costs you can expect to pay a good you know sixty bucks a month or or so. Um, so yes, like if you, if you really want that, but is sixty dollars a month really that much when you compare it to the kind of fees that you have to pay with Visa? And additionally, the the other fees associated with these things. So a business that is running that they don't have to deal with you know, chargebacks and, and fraud of the same sort. Um, they don't have to be, you know, liable for the fact that they're taking people's private information. I mean, not only as a consumer do you want to feel, um, 
you know, unsafe about giving people, you know, your credit card, even though we kind of all have to, you know, as a business, you need to make sure that like, okay, well, am I, am I doing, am, am I doing processing with a company that's um, uh, PCI compliant and all that to make sure like my customers, you know, don't get hacked. Like think of, you know, how, how embarrassing, what are, what are the costs for targets um, when their, their credit card stuff got breached? You know, that's an extremely high cost. And, and these types of things uh, can be helped uh, to be avoided with Bitcoin. So once again, this is classic Keynesian thinking. Um, in, in this case, by virtue of the fact that Krugman has no ability to see the unseen uh, costs of the world around him. He is only able to look at something and see, oh, see, Bitcoin isn't impossibly free. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not zero dollars and therefore it's, it's extremely expensive or whatever. When, um, the unseen costs like that you deal with, with using any other system are so, so much higher and so much greater. Um, so I, I really think that Krugman needs to go back and read some Bastiat to, uh, to kind of just get back to the fundamentals before he'll even ever possibly understand bitcoin yeah yeah agreed it's like uh that concept that the the cost of one money standard the opportunity cost of one money to money standard is not using another more sound money standard and in in neglecting this comparison that's where krugman is basically making the error yeah, um, I, okay I so like, the next yeah. i'd like to point out um, it's it's something that you know i i had you know, reach back in my mind thinking of uh, stuff I've learned from, you know, the Mises Institute, going to Mises University and such. Um, there's a concept in economics. Um, I mean, you can apply it elsewhere than just economics, but here we see it a lot um, of things like the Nirvana, what's called the Nirvana fallacy. What the Nirvana fallacy is, is looking at the world and seeing that it does not match your own sort of uh, preconceived, almost utopian vision of how it ought to be, and therefore it's flawed. Um, the most common place you'll see this in economics is just the fact that neoclassical economists in general um, will use economic concepts and constructs such as uh, perfect competition. And so they look out in the world and they see that there is not perfect competition, and therefore Anything that happens on the market or, you know, the market, you know, someone isn't able to buy something at the price that they wish they could buy it at. Well, there wasn't perfect competition and therefore there was some kind of market failure. Um, and so likewise here, you know, if you think, you know, what does he think? Does he think that Bitcoin needs to be absolutely costless? Because that's, you know, as, as long as we're dealing in a universe that has, you know, matter and energy and time, Nothing is costless, and so um, it, it's really disingenuous, and it's a, it's a nirvana fallacy to compare you know Bitcoin to this as opposed to um, what you should be doing in economics, which is uh, looking at a choice and comparing it to its alternatives. Yeah, that's a great articulation there. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, okay, and then the next section, he says. Governments have occasionally abused the privilege of creating fiat money. I mean, occasionally. Let's try all the time, eventually. Um, and then it does, this is not even considering the impact of the you know the boom bust cycle that inflationists cause. Did you have any comments on that? 
I mean, it's a good stand-up bit, I, I suppose. Um, <laughs> that that idea is, <laughs> but like, yeah. So first of all, it's it's hilarious to think that uh, it's it's only occasional abuse uh, because I mean, obviously, this is an audio podcast, so we can't just you know show a bunch of graphs. But I you know want anyone who's listening to go look at you know maybe a what would you say like m3 money supply graph would probably be the best to look at just just see the yeah. the incredible rise especially especially in the 70s after closing the gold window but then especially when you get to you know 2007 2008 um when the government had to put out you know trillions of dollars um to deal with the mess the housing bubble that Krugman um was asking for and pushing for so yeah the the idea that governments only occasionally abuse this privilege is uh absolutely ridiculous uh throughout history banks um have always tried to um fractionally reserve money and inflate the money supply at any chance they got um there there's man there's also there's so much to say about this like you know even if the government was, you know, able to restrain itself, the imagine the, the way he imagines they can. So, because what he says in this was something about how, um, you know, when you look at uh, Fed bankers and stuff, they actually usually are, are restraining themselves because they don't want to go out of business or whatever. Um, and I actually don't even think that that's necessarily wrong. Like you do, if you want to keep up this con for the long run. You do have to have to boil the frog slowly. Um, you can't just print all the money now. You have to make sure that you kind of keep everyone from from noticing a problem, so that there isn't a crack up boom and you have hyperinflation. Um, so, so I kind of believe that. But even if they're doing their jobs perfectly, they like to speak of one or two percent inflation. Um, being a sort of target goal for society. They'll use reasons about like the growing economy and all that. I think it's really just they 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 looked at the charts and decided that 2% of the you know economy should be their paycheck. But uh, in any case, like even if even if they only had 1% inflation, you know, anyone needs to remember that that means that 50% of your wealth has been devalued after 36 years. Um, and that is incredibly bad for acting as a savings vehicle. You cannot put your money under a mattress if in 50 years you expect it to just, I mean, in, in 36 years, expect it to be 50% worth 50% less. Um, now, perhaps if, if we at the end of this found that there was literally no way, better way to do money, then perhaps that's an okay trade-off. Um, but I have zero reason to believe that's the case because of what we understand about gold and Bitcoin and all these alternative monies. And therefore, I, I don't see that as an argument. And I just see that as a sign of, you know, really, a really bad shit coin. Um, so and on top of this, it means that Krugman has no sense, once again, of the fragility of the system, because even if they're trying to restrain themselves, um, when you are trying to play God and control the economy, because this is basically the, the Fed is effectively like the Wizard and the Wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain is just a, a person trying to pull all these levers because they believe 
that they know the economy um, and they can control the economy to their will. Now, this is this is an affront to you know what we know about you know what the economy really is. It's a it's a very organic process and it's a very complex process. So when you're trying to pull all these levers in such a complex process, you are creating a much more fragile system. Um, and this is where black swans will kill you. So, you know, plenty of people saw the housing crisis, you know, that that bust coming. Um, plenty of people saw many other crises, crises um, coming to an end. Uh, but these people don't necessarily, um, which is, you know, why, why they are okay with pumping it in the first place. Um, and so without that sense of the black swan events, these, these fat tails, you know, everything that Nassim Taleb talks about, you, you, you actually have a harder time putting that restraint on yourself because you, you, you don't fully understand the, um, the possibilities of just how bad things can go wrong. Um, and Bitcoin, thankfully, obviates all of this because you just it, it already has the perfect monetary policy and it has one that cannot be messed with. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the, the, the bankers and, and Krugman are, do not play uh, by that, which is why we need Bitcoin in the first place. The other, of course, you know, as, as a sort of Keynesian and stuff, he believes that, um, you know, monetary policy is a tool to mitigate the effects of mis- business cycles and other um, economic shocks and stuff like that. Um, while monetary policy, poor monetary policy, um, is actually the cause of these business cycles. So they don't understand that when you're back there pulling all those levers, you're actually setting the stage um, for these for these uh, business cycles. Um, you know, I, I of course recommend anyone go read you know Rothbard. Um, what's it? What's it called? Uh, economic cycles. Their cause. What has government done to money? Uh, that one. Oh, yep. Economic cycles before the Fed is a good talk by Tom Woods on that as well. Yeah, and then there, I think it's uh, economic cycles, their cause and cure, or something like that. Is that what it's? I can't. I'm, I'm totally blanking on yeah, it. And then, I... of course, there's uh, uh, money, bank credit, and economic cycles by Huerta de Soto, which is sort of you know the Bible and long enough to be so on on this topic. Um, so. It, Anyway, the point being that, um, you know, all, all the problems that they're trying to fix, you can just avoid in the first place if you don't act like you can be pulling these levers at all. And Bitcoin uh, pulls the, pulls the uh, uh, you know, got the, the wizard from behind the curtain and puts up an iron curtain so no one else can go in there and touch anything. Yeah, 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 that, and that's and that's kind of ultimately that's really what the problem we're solving. We're solving, you know, the inflationist ideology, and that by simply creating more tickets to money, that we can become richer, which is just wrong. By returning to hard or sound money, the world will become more prosperous. Yeah, there was okay, a great. Um, there was so a great let's quote. move on. Go on. There was a great quote um, from the Property and Freedom Society where Hans Hermann Hoppe is trying to talk about how you can explain these things to, to Krugman. And he says how, how you just have to, you have to talk to him like he's a kindergartner and just ask him polite, like just slowly and quietly, how does producing more 
paper dollars increase your wealth. Um, and when you really, anyone who stops and thinks about that can, can, should hopefully quickly understand why that makes no sense. But unfortunately, uh, that <laughs> people don't seem to do that because they have, uh, they've benefited from not understanding that. Yeah, great point. I, I remember, I know that video. I know the one you're talking about. I think it's like a very short, there's a two minute clip on YouTube. I'll find it and I'll put it in the uh, show notes for this episode. Um, okay. And then, so the next point here is, I mean, he's sort of going into the typical kind of canards that people, people who don't like Bitcoin you know, the typical arguments they make. So he's saying the purchasing power of a dollar a year from now is highly predictable, orders of magnitude more predictable than that of a Bitcoin. So ultimately, it's just a big straw man. He's just basically critiquing Bitcoin because it's new. It's only nine years old and it's a drop in the bucket compared to everything else in the world. You know, so it's only going to seem, you know, unstable for the, in this short period of adoption. Well, it, it might take a while. Um, but did you have any comments on that, Michael? Yeah, I mean, that basically that that uh, covers a lot of it. It's just the fact that, you know, once again, it, it, I don't know if this would be a nirvana fallacy per se, but it's basically like, you know, you, you think it has to have already succeeded to have succeeded. Um, and yeah, these things take time. You know, it's actually, it's actually when you really stop back, step back and think about what Bitcoin has achieved, it's absolutely amazing. Someone, someone created, you know, digital internet money on scratch in an obscure corner of the internet. And now it has a market cap of $150 billion. And it's a worldwide phenomenon that gains headlines and, and Nobel Prize winning economists feel the need to comment on it. Like that is... That, that, that's incredible, you know? So to think that, you know, because right now it's a little volatile is somehow a problem. If anything, it means you should invest because, you know, if you're someone like me who thinks, uh, you know, Bitcoin has uh, a long ways to go, then the volatility is good. If it wasn't volatile, it would have mean, meant that it already reached its equilibrium. I don't believe that's the case. And so it has so much room to grow um, and investors can profit off that. Um you know, it's, it's so, it's so small, you know, it's very illiquid, this thing that I don't even know when Bitcoin will stop being volatile. People use this as an argument all the time. Uh, but look, like right now, like given this, this fact that we think that it can, it can be hyper monetized, you know, this is where, you know, I, you know, hyper Bitcoinization and all that, that moves us from $140 billion to what, $90 trillion or something in terms of kind of relative purchasing power. Um, so it has to get there. Um, and, and then we don't even know if it'll stop there because, you know, Pierre uh, did a great job of really pointing this out. When we compare the potential of Bitcoin to gold or fiat, we're underselling it because gold was, you know, only so good as a money. It was a very good money, but, you know, it, it has its flaws. Like it's, it's, you know, it's not as scarce as, as Bitcoin. Um, it has extremely high storage costs and all this. Um, fiat money, um, <laughs> I mean, need I go on about all the problems with fiat money, but, you know, clearly uh, Bitcoin is a better money um, than uh, fiat money. I shouldn't say clearly because apparently it's not to some people. Um, 
But, you know, if, it, you know, I believe Bitcoin is a better money than fiat. And thus, why should I expect that a world power on Bitcoin would only be as wealthy as a world powered on um, fiat? So if that's the case, like, I don't even know where the upper bound of Bitcoin is. I actually think that, you know, with the, the, the fiat comparisons and gold comparisons, that's, that's more of a lower bound of what Bitcoin is possible. So we're talking about like a, a massive uh, amount of economic growth um, to be found. And um, to get from here to there, it, it literally has to be un- unstable. You, you can't have a stable jump. There's not going to be nothing. Nothing is going to act in such a linear fashion um, that's that that's going to uh, something, anything, anything in the real world would go in a perfectly linear fashion. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, uh, did you have a point? No, no, go on. No, I mean, I'm it's just a dear idea to say that. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, the next thing, um, Paul talks about is, uh, how, He's saying, okay, look, it's been eight years after Bitcoin was launched and cryptocurrencies have made very few inroads into actual commerce. Few, only a few firms will accept them as payment. I think this just fundamentally is misunderstanding the hyper-Bitcoinization thesis. Why would people want to spend their Bitcoin now anyway? It only makes sense to really do this post-hyper-Bitcoinization. So I think ultimately he's just putting the merchant adoption uh, and acceptance you know, ahead of everything else. And he's basically putting the cart before the horse. Uh, absolutely, and this ties into that that other thing too. Is um, you know, th- this is also part of why you know Bitcoin will will sort of see that 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 growth is more people you know demanding it as store value that lower uh, you know increases that sort of lower bound by hodlers of last resort and such. Um, but I think that the the Keynesian thinking that's shining through there is the idea that you know money needs the sort of circular flow. And so if you don't have people accepting money as payments or rather, um, you know, actually, I mean, here I would say, I don't even think the problem, I, I think, you know, if he, if he wants to steal man, he shouldn't even be focused on the fact that uh, firms will accept them as payment because I think firms would accept Bitcoin as payment if people wanted to pay in Bitcoins, you know, it, it would be silly for a, a company to have People wanting to give them, you know, like, oh, we can make millions of dollars in revenue, uh, but we have to accept Bitcoin. So we're going to only accept a couple thousand dollars in revenue by accepting fiat. Like no, no firm would do that. Right. So what you should really be looking at is the fact that it's like, well, no one wants to spend their Bitcoins. And that's where the lack of velocity is coming from. Um, the problem is, is like that does not actually tell us whether or not a currency is going to succeed at becoming money, um, because that's not something that comes now. You know, of course, people don't want to to spend it. Um, they want to use money as a medium of exchange, where medium of exchange is over the long run. They want to trade future value for present value. That is, they believe that in the future, Bitcoin will be widely demanded. And so they want to profit off that instead of just giving up their Bitcoins now. And they want to put money into savings. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I know SAFE has gone on a, a lot about the sort of differences be- between 
you know, savings and investments and all that. But, you know, basically this is what it is, is, you know, because everyone wants to just hoard, um, Keynesians don't understand that that is a productive act um, to, to save money is a, and, and they call it hoarding. It's really just saving. Um, to save money is a productive act because you're, you're hedging against a future uncertainty. Um, and, you know, even, even at the fundamental level, just like going back you know, uh, to the, to the, you know, uh, fundamentals of uh, uh, Austrian economics, you have the action axiom, you know, humans, humans act purposefully. Well, if someone's saving money, they're not trying to do that just because they're, they, they think it's fun or whatever. It's because they think that it, it brings a, a profit to them. They think that um, there will be future opportunities that give them more than whatever they can um, spend that money on now. So it's a, it's a completely productive thing, uh, but they view it as uh, not productive because if you're not putting the money into the economy, so to speak, then, you know, people, there's, people aren't investing in, in jobs and then everyone goes hungry because they don't want to spend money on food. Um, and that's whole, that whole deflationary spiral argument <laughs> spirals out of that. Um, so once again, yeah, it's, it's basically, he thinks there needs to be circular flow in velocity and we say no there's a productive reason why people want to save. And it's that very fact that more and more people want to save uh, that shows us that Bitcoin has a very strong future. Yeah, no, great articulation there. It's around basically having a sufficiently developed theory of capital and understanding that capital accumulation is how civilization grows and prospers rather than being consumption driven, which is that sort of Keynesian Krugmanite mindset. And then so the next topic is basically Krugman trying to smear it again, smear Bitcoin and say, oh, what's all that cash holding about? We all know the answer. It's tax evasion and illicit activity and cryptocurrencies are just competing for some of that same business. So again, this is just some of the old sort of smear arguments and not paying attention to the superiority of Bitcoin's monetary policy. Yes, although at least I'm, I'm happy here that he admits that uh, holding cash is a productive activity. Um, it's just that he doesn't like um, some of the productive things that it brings people and, and productive in this case, I'm not arguing for tax evasion or illicit activity, but people do it because it, it brings them some sort of profit. Um, but so he's, he's admitting that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's weird to say this in 2018 um, when the Silk Road was taken down in, what was it? Late 2013, you know, and when the Silk Road was taken down, we had a flash crash and then we saw Bitcoin, quickly rise to its all-time high at the time, um, which to me was a strong market signal that Bitcoin's use in drugs is actually like marginal. Um, so it's actually very strange. That's, that's, I think, an empirically false statement to make. Um, and it's, you know, Bitcoin's, I, I you know, if, if you do decide that uh, certain activities that are either frowned upon or not um, uh, legal in certain jurisdictions, if that's what you want to use Bitcoin for, you might, you might want to look into you know, other methods such as using the United States dollar uh, like it's traditionally done uh, because of the public nature of it. Um, although, you know, hopefully Krugman will help out with uh, 
you know, some coin join tech schemes and technologies to, uh, you know, help with these things. But um, yeah, once again, I, he, he doesn't understand that maybe you would just want to save money for the future. That's actually a, a perfectly reasonable thing for any decent human to want in life is just to be able to save money for the future. And uh, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense to him. Um, yeah, it could just be that he is unable to relate to the average man in the street, so to speak. You know, where everyone else in the world, most people feel some level of uncertainty. They don't have sort of this very highly paid, prestigious position and a certain a certain position in society that other people don't have, and that you know, really, we we need to save money because we face uncertainty in this world, and we need it to help us deal with that. Um, so yeah, I think we'll we'll sort of. Um, sort of wrap up the the last segment of the Krugman uh, article and basically he says oh so that's why I'm a crypto skeptic could I be wrong of course and uh, I think we both would agree that he, he is wrong and he has been wrong as you said since December 28 2013 when the price was $717 and as we make this uh, podcast the price is 7446 so we're talking Literally over 10x. 10 times <laughs> what he said. Yeah. Oh, one last so. thing that I'd like to mention about Krugman is this whole point about, um, you know, uh, we, we touched on this, but the whole men with guns thing. He thinks that that's a viable backing for a currency. Um, but I'd like to point out that there have been many fiat currencies in jurisdictions that have had, you know, armies. And yet it's still collapsed. You know, the system is still fragile no matter how you look at it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that there's a guy with a gun. You still need to pay that guy with a gun, by the way, with something. That guy's going to want to save money for future uncertainty as well. So, you know, we've seen Weimar Germany hyperinflate. We've seen Venezuela hyperinflate. We've seen all these places hyperinflate um, and have their currencies collapse. Um, and they have, they have plenty of men with guns there. So I, it, that is... That is a, a poor backing for the app coin that is the United States dollar. Exactly right. Yeah, so I think it's basically that the charterless view is only – you can only go so far with that men with guns concept. Eventually, you've got to pay the postman and that's what happens in many cases. As you said, with Venezuela, Argentina, Iran, Zimbabwe, Germany, all, all – big uh, prominent examples in history and from modern day. Um, okay, so I think let's um, just touch on a couple other topics. Uh, I think one thing that's uh, happening now with in the Bitcoin space is a lot of the altcoiners come out and say, oh, you guys, you Bitcoiners, you just call everything a scam. Like, not everything is a scam. And I think this is uh, a, a topic we've discussed, which is around the scammer heuristic with crypto. You know, that not maybe not everything is literally a BitConnect scam, but many things are scam-ish. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wrote an article that's literally everyone's a scammer. So when people say, oh, well, not everything's a scam, it's like, no, literally everything's a scam. Um, and I highly recommend people read the article and, and try to read it carefully because I, I think it actually is one of my best um, sort of uh, elucidations of sort of the maximalist position on these things. And apparently in a, in a way that a lot of people didn't quite pick up on, on first reading, um, probably because of the, you know, they, they think the title's hyperbolic or whatever. But, you know, the, the key thing 
in this case, you know, when, when people say that they need to understand about this scam concept um, is just the fact, first of all, when I speak, I'm assuming that hyper-Bitcoinization is a, uh, a sort of reality. Like it's happening right now and it's, it's going to continue happening. So given that, what are the ways in which you need to approach the world? And one of the things is, well, you have this, you have this resource that, in your opinion, is extremely undervalued. So if anyone is trying to get you to give them up, perhaps they're trying to scam you out of your uh, future, uh, future wealth. And so the, the scammer heuristic is basically saying, you know, treat everything as a scam where someone is trying to trick you out of your long-term uh, potential wealth because they want it <laughs> and until it's proven otherwise. Um, I'm not against people spending their Bitcoins if there's something they really want. If all you wanted in life was a Lambo and you have enough money for a Lambo now, go get the Lambo. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if after this whole process, you know, for a lot of us, I think Bitcoin has really made us think more about our own time preferences and adjust accordingly and think about our, our future selves and what we truly want in life, what we truly value. And because of that, like there's actually a lot of things that... Um, it's much harder to sell me things, quite honestly. Um, even even if, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. A little thing popped it's up on the screen. Um, yeah, yeah, like you know, uh, even if I wanted to spend my bitcoins, there's not necessarily as much uh, stuff that I actually want um, to do. So, um, and of course, when it comes to these altcoins, they really are scams because nothing, none of them are offering me. Um, a sound money alternative to the U.S. dollar that's quite as powerful as Bitcoin is. They're not decentralized yes, as much. Great articulation there. Strong monetary policy, et cetera, et cetera. They're just not Bitcoin, so they're scams. <laughs> mm, yep, yep. So uh, I think, and then that's that's the other thing that comes up. I think online there's a lot of discussion about our oh, Bitcoin maximalism. Is Bitcoin maximalism descriptive or is it prescriptive? Do you have any comments on that? Yeah. So uh, I believe I, I think of Bitcoin maximalism as first and foremost a descriptive statement about monetary economics. It looks at the world and we're, we're trying to make an honest assessment of the nature of monetary competition and network effects. And what our conclusions are, um, and it's one that's been around, like this is no, no new idea. It's not like Bitcoin Maximals made up this idea, but it's basically that um, one currency, one good will tend to dominate. The whole point of money is you want the most saleable and liquid good. And so one, one currency, one, one good will uh, gain that spot as the most saleable and liquid good. And, um, everything else will at best be sort of niche. Um, this is sort of given given free market uh, conditions, uh, which because Bitcoin is as it is, legal tender laws have you know no ability to stop it. So it creates its own free market conditions. So because of that, we look and we also look at you know the importance of monetary policy and all the stuff that Safe talks about: stock to flow ratio, the scarcity, etc. And because of that, Bitcoin has the best monetary policy. And thus, we come to the, you know, sort of positive economic conclusion that Bitcoin uh, is is likely the best, um, you know, money 
and Bitcoin will be that thing. Now, where the prescriptive stuff comes in is related to what I was saying is once you've come to that conclusion, how do you how do you go about looking at the world? And one of the things is, you know, you start thinking, well, everything's kind of a scam. Um, and so you, you start sort of developing community norms around like, hey, don't scam people, you know, don't, uh, don't, one, one that's coming up is, you know, don't concern troll Bitcoin. Or if you have, if you have a, a problem, uh, people expect you to come up with a solution or, you know, pre- present your, present your criticism in a constructive manner, um, as opposed to uh, having this sort of uh, winking, uh, you know, tone where it's like, oh, let's throw away everything and come up with our better scheme, which also happens to give me a founder's reward or, you know, pre-mine or whatever, whatever scheme there is that, that enriches you. Um, so a, a lot of sort of different norms um, come up around this. I think, I think Giacomo um, is really good at um, enumerating all these kinds of stuff, but that's where the dichotomy is. Our, our economic statements about, um, what we believe in terms of Bitcoin winning, that is totally, we're, we're trying to be descriptive. If you, if you have, uh, you know, disagreements with our logic, you can, you can say that, but it's, it's not meant to be a sort of prescriptive. We're not against other currencies existing. We're saying that because of how monetary economics works, one will win. And we happen for these reasons to believe that Bitcoin will be that one that wins. Yeah, great way of explaining it. I like that. That's great. Um, And then I think the last thing, um, the other thing around developers and the philosophy of development. So you've previously commented about the Unix philosophy, which has a few principles. Did you want to outline some of those? Yes. Well, and how they're applied to Bitcoin, obviously. I think the Unix developers were sort of the the stoic philosophers of the 20th century. Um, you can you can gather some brilliant thinking from these guys, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I highly recommend people, um, you know, check out uh, Eric Raymond's "The Art of Unix Programming." Um, it's on it's on the Nakamoto Institute. Um, some of the stuff there's there's things like you know about keep it simple. You know, um, everything is is uh, meant to be sort of lightweight tools. Um, actually, probably a more important, more famous thing is like you want to write programs that do one thing and do it well. So in Unix, what this means is that you don't have a giant program that does literally everything under the sun. What you have instead are little utilities that other programs can chain together to do other things. So it's very modular. You have you have um, you know a program. Just giving some very very basic examples, but like uh, LS, uh, actually, that, that's what you would type into the, the command line, like LS, and then a directory, and it just lists the files in the directory. Then what you can do is use a pipe character and pipe that output into another program that maybe parses it and looks for you know a, a certain pattern that you're looking for, and you have like a different tool for that, and that pipes into another one. Um, and you keep keep kind of this chain of tools um, with inputs and outputs, and each program itself is focused on doing nothing but that one thing the best it can. And 
what this means is there are programs that were written in the 70s that everyone still uses today. And they're still like the best way to do um, a lot of things. And I actually see it as a, I, I feel like a failure when I realized that I, I, you know, wrote a whole Python script that I could have d- just done with a couple bash commands. Um, so what does that mean for what we're talking about? Well, a lot of people want Bitcoin to include everything under the sun. Um, so this is the original Bitcoin maximalist straw man was, oh, they want every app to be on Bitcoin. But that's actually not at all what we want. Um, I do not want Bitcoin to be bloated with a bunch of uh, you know, decentralized apps filling up block space with its data. You know, I don't want to wake up in a world where I have to pay for the world to stream Netflix using blockchain data. Um, instead, the idea here is that the tool that we want is digital cash, and I want Bitcoin to zero in on that and do that one thing really, really well. And it does. You know, so so Bitcoin does not spend its time, um, you know, working on on. Netflix on the blockchain or all the, all these other things that Ethereum people and, you know, I shouldn't just pick on them. There's a whole bunch of other people who, who fall down this trap, including some Bitcoiners. You know, let's put social media on the blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. You know, instead, the, the, the Bitcoin investors have chosen a path and, and the developers have taken up the cause of zeroing in on what do we need to do to secure Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin's ability to be a scarce digital money. And everything else is superfluous and should just be rightfully avoided. Yep, great points there. And I think maybe you could just comment a little on how the modularity of development really helps developers who are just in their say they're developing on one particular piece of software, they don't have to worry so much about what's going on in other parts of the program or other parts of the stack, so to speak. Oh, exactly. I mean, uh, to to bring this to even a lower level, when you create an app coin or an ICO or whatever, you have to think about not just, uh, you know, providing your your product, uh, whatever it might be, you also have to think about being the Federal Reserve. <laughs> you know, by, by coming up with the, the money rules. And it's, it's absurd. Like you don't, you shouldn't be putting that work on yourself. So instead, yes, uh, it's very good to have, you know, modules and layers such that, you know, a person just working on the UX layer for a wallet can just interact with a, an API so that they can, they can sort of put everything, they can abstract everything away and put it into a black box and just focus on on the one thing that they want to do well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very important. Um, and, you know, if you're doing lightning development, um, you don't have to think about making sure that Bitcoin protocol is working as as you know, perfectly or whatever. You're just connecting to Bitcoin Core or um, some of them do BTCD. Um, and uh, you just assume that to be going well. Then if you're making a Lightning wallet, you don't have to know, you, you don't have to worry as much, like is LND doing its job with uh, actually handling the HTLC contracts or 
um, or, or sea lightning or whatever you're using. Um, instead, you can focus purely on, okay, now that we have this thing, you know, now that we have programmable scarce digital money, now we can think about creating time hash time locked contracts. And then you can go to the next thing. It's like, well, now that we can assume we have working hash time lock contracts, what's the thing we can work on? Um, and you can you can abstract these things away and and focus on on your little part of the uh, your your little garden in the the ecosystem. Yeah, fantastic points. I think the listeners will really get a lot of value out of that, especially the ones who are not as technical, and they can help hopefully understand the difference in the way Bitcoiners and people building on Bitcoin approach things versus some of the altcoins and why, you know, the contrasting philosophies there. Okay, so I think that's basically all we've got time for. So we might um, just uh, wrap up the discussion, guys. So you can find Michael on Twitter. His account is Bitstein, B-I-T-S-T-E-I-N. He is a highly recommended follow. Definitely go and check out the Nakamoto Institute, particularly the crash course in Bitcoin political economy if you're new. Uh, Michael is also available for consulting, so look him up, bitstein.org slash consulting. Have you got anything else you'd like to bring up at this point, Michael? Uh, not really. I'm just, I'm, I'm so honored that you brought me on. Um, you know, I, it's, it's been a pleasure being a Bitcoin friends with you for many years now. Um, you've been putting out great content for years, especially from, you know, the accounting front um, and all that. So, um, you know, it's been real great and I'm, 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 this podcast has, has already become one of the best podcasts uh, in the space, um, competing with my very own. Um, and I'm, I'm honored to say that. Uh, so you, you've just been doing a great job and I'm, I'm so glad that you invited me on. I've, I've had a real blast. Uh, it's amazing how quickly time passed while we're having this discussion. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it, it was it was an honor to have you on, Michael. I think you've um, offered some really fantastic insights for the listeners. And uh, yeah, definitely I'll get you back on sooner or later. We'll try and uh, make this a regular thing. Um, okay, guys. So I'll just wrap up then. So look up this page on my website, stefanlevera.com. This episode will be SLP6 and I'll put all the links, uh, the relevant links such as the Krugman column, Michael's article on scammers, the Nakamoto Institute, uh, Michael's Twitter, a few other bits and pieces as we've discussed. And just lastly, if I could request that you guys, if you've enjoyed the discussion, please do give me a good rating on uh, iTunes and on Stitcher and share the podcast with your friends. That's it from us. Thanks very much. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bitstein Mega episode on Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the original podcast and also check out the Pierre Rochard mega episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Noted Podcast or visit us on the web at noted.org.